0: Out here in the perimeter there are no stars Out here we is stoned, immaculate Hello and welcome, this is the C86 Show, I'm David Eastall As you know, we love a special guest this week It's going to be the turn of the musician, guitarist, vocalist, songwriter It's the one and only Ed Shred, or sometimes known as Ed Wen and probably various other bands, uh, names. But he's been in lots of bands, including Sync, which is the important one. They're all important, I know. But also had a moment with, um, the Stupids, but, uh, Big Ray Chocolate, and Dealing With Damage, which is, I do believe, one of his later combos that he's with. But anyway, look, you're going to find out all that information and much more in the show. So, um, after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we got down to our exciting subject. That was the early point of years. Ed, it's over to
1: you. It's really interesting, actually, because as you know, I've listened to a lot of your show and I do listen to a lot of podcasts with other kind of musicians and things, and and I often... Put myself in their shoes sometimes if the question's interesting or particularly re- you know re- uh, you know kind of uh, resonates in some way and and for me I think the thing that I've always been sort of um, quite interested in is that I don't really have a musical kind of background at all right so I've got no I haven't got any stories about my mum going around the kitchen singing into a wooden spoon or anything like that or or my dad but being a violinist or anything like that I've got you know my, my my dad was kind of into classical by the time I I came along and they had a very small record collection. Um, and there was no music really played around the house at all it was kind of you know radio you know we moved to um germany so we grew up i grew up really in germany and parents were both teachers in um a forces school uh, out there so i listened to what was called british forces radio yes.
0: uh, BFB,
1: bfbs british forces broadcasting service which is kind of mainly recycled bbc stuff um yeah. but my mum did have a couple of beatles albums and i they're really the band that, um, in terms of just first really kind of liking music as a thing and kind of wanting to replay something and kind of just what was that, you know, what was that thing that I heard that made me want to go back? You know, what was the mm. thing? I think as a youngster, you know, so we're talking about pre 10 years old, it really was the Beatles. They had the red album, the blue album, and they had, I think I got Help at some point, And then I also got Magical Mystery Tour. So those were the four albums. My, and i listened to them non-stop all the way through and i was obsessed by the pictures of how the beatles changed from the kind of fresh faced you know and then you know the, the beards and everything like that you know um although in both pictures they're about half the age i am now but you know <laughs> so i loved that and i really did li- start to listen to i, I guess try and k- kind of reach towards what was it that was making those noises that i liked because i heard music elsewhere and I, none of it all it didn't all grab me um there was some stuff on the radio that i quite liked but then also in my dad's record collection. And this is something that I heard you discuss um, recently on a podcast that could have been from two years ago. He also had two of Rick Wakeman's solo albums. He had the Knights of King Arthur, right? And, um, and and he had, what was the one with the, there was the Knights of King Arthur. And then there was another one. I can't remember what what it was that wasn't as good, but I absolutely loved that, that Knights of King Arthur thing. The whole thing, the gatefold sleeve and the anvil on the front and the, um, the ladies, hand coming out of the the water on the yeah. back. So I was kind of obsessed w- with those, you know. Again, like I said, eight nine year old. Um, and and that was it really. And I and I don't really, um, you know, my de- my mum was obsessed with ABBA as well. So every time they had a party, we'd just have ABBA the whole time. So I did kind of grow up listening to ABBA as a kind of passive listener, you know, sort of so classic pop and the Beatles. And then it was really whatever was on the radio. And I think that, um, you know, at the age of kind of like seventy nine. 78, 79, I became aware of stuff like things Silly Thing kind of resonated with me. And I really liked Tixies Midnight Runners, you know. Um, but it was really just I was listening to whatever was in the charts, really. Luckily, the charts were pretty amazing at the time. Mm. Um, and I think the first time that I really got bitten by the bug in terms of like kind of record buying, you know, um, I bought a Boomtown Rats album. Um, so this is, as a kind of young teenager, bought the Fine Art of Surfacing, which I really liked. But I just, and I was thinking about this this morning because I knew you'd ask this. The moment, I think, where it all kind of went off in my brain in terms of like, this is something kind of really new and exciting and that I need to absolutely kind of spend the rest of my life doing was, um, and it's a bit late, but again, I'm not embarrassed to say, I was Sound Effects by The Jam, that first track, Pretty Green, mm. where it just goes, Dum, doom, 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 doom. And then there's that snare. <laughs> boom and that was that literally from that moment my life changed and it was a bit strange because I did you know I did then like the jam a lot. I'm not I'm not interested in in poor weather at all anymore, but I did go for a few years of being obsessed with the jam um but it was almost like there's something you know it was just a baseline, really that's yes. what it was. it was a baseline you think that's a bit weird, but I mean obviously I'd listen to the Beatles and everything and I probably liked the jam because I'd listened to the Beatles. I hadn't made the connection at that point, you know, I hadn't had that moment going, oh my God, look what he ripped off. <laughs> the thing um yeah but yeah and i think that so probably from that sound effects jam that that moment was when i first really started then getting into music uh and that kind of so coincided with moving back to the uk and uh kind of living on my own really so you
0: know so where so did your parents grow up on a, a an air not an air force base an army base in germany
1: it wasn't no so so they moved there in 1970. So I moved out when I was four, slash four, five, whatever. So I kind of grew up in Germany. I lived there till I was 15, or my parents lived there till I was 15. I moved back to England um, about a year earlier, moved back to England in 1980. Um, But what it was is the. um, uh, the school we went to was an old German army barracks, but the um, the, the house we lived in was just in a kind of like a village, really. It was a part of the town. The town, funnily enough, was called Ham. It's really near to Dortmund and Bielefeld and places like that. Um, and there was a big English... Um, there was a boys boarding school, a girls boarding school there as well, primary school and loads and loads of houses. And so we just kind of had a part of town. So everyone for a few streets of us was all we're all Brits. But if you just cross the other side of the road, it's all German. So we kind of grew up in this kind of it's a strange hybrid. Yeah, sort of so that's thing, interesting
0: because my brother went in the army probably about 76. So my dad and he then got stationed in Germany at a place called Hereford. And, oh, yeah. um, Hereford. And- Hereford, Hereford, yeah,
1: there's no second E. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's quite
0: close to us. I I think I just always meant (laughs) compliance at Hereford. But my dad used to, on a Sunday afternoon, listen to British forces radio and they'd have those sentimental requests from people around the world, weren't they, here Mm. in the forces? So I do remember that as he was digging the garden on a Sunday afternoon in that classic, classic cliche way. But luckily, well, not luckily, the music was probably dreadful from what I can remember. But it's interesting about the Rick Wakeman, because obviously, as, as 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 you know, my mm. brother my brother was seven years older, so he had that kind of, you know, he went for sort of prog rock in a big way, and mm. it was all sweet and not sweet. It was, yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, and the, the solo work of Rick Wakeman. But I just wonder if that was the King, was King Henry? King, King Henry, Henry? I think it, it probably was. I can't remember what
1: the other one was.
0: There wasn't yes. that many because he had Journey to the Center of the Earth, King mm. Arthur. Um, and then there was a few kind of slightly dodgy ones. But I do I do remember with the King Arthur one that did the narrative. I think the guy who does the speaking bit is Vivian Stanshaw, isn't he? I think that's the 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 person who does his for, you know does that great mm. speech because i do remember having it on and then hearing it and being really freaked out because my brother had said look do never never play any of my records and go in my room <laughs> so so obviously i sneaked in there and would play it and then i heard that voice and was completely like you know like oh my god what have i done
1: so well, it's you... funny i've not i've not listened to it since to be honest i need to listen i need to go back and listen to it the other one was war of the worlds which again we don't really think of it almost as a as a musical thing but obviously there's those great you know justin with that forever was it forever autumn or something oh, yeah and then there was david
0: essex and there was um oh god who was that famous actor lizzie uh,
1: Oh, richard burton did the richard, voice
0: the voice and yeah. phil
1: linnet did a song i remember that so again that was just you know enjoying that as a kind of almost like musical theater i suppose really but um yes, anyway yes it was sorry. it
0: was an epic one so then mm. when you got to 15 16 you came back to did you live in east anglia or suffolk was this your hometown you know? oh yeah
1: so that's why i need to yeah i need to cover that off with you yeah so so what happened is. The short version of the story is that my mum's parents were Scottish and they uh, he was a steelworker and he moved around right so born in Scotland he ended up in Ireland Bristol during the war he used to build Merlin engines and he ended up in Ipswich where there was a big um uh, steel works called Crane Steelworks and he ended up there in the 50s so my mum sort of finished um secondary school in Ipswich um, and then became a teacher, and then they moved to Germany. So what happened is that in um, the late 70s, the Brits started pulling out of Germany. I think when I first moved there, there's about half a million Brits living in Germany, which is a lot um, mm. un- under a single employer, especially when they're mostly armed. <laughs> and I think that for whatever reason, by the 79, um, 80 kind of period, they decided that they were going to reduce the footprint right, of, of, um, of the army. And so what happened is a lot of the schools that they had there, there were quite a few, um they started closing them down and my parents realized that it would be like halfway through my o-levels that the school i was at and that they taught at was going to close down so what happened is the army um offered to pay for two-thirds of any tuition fees if you wanted to send your kids back home to go to boarding school. Now, I don't know if that's available to everyone, like rank and file, or if it was just officers. My parents were both, you got an equivalent rank, so they were both like hippie hippie teachers. And I think they were both captains in the army or something that was there, because you get a house according to rank. It's all very, Mm -hmm. you know, as you might imagine, it's all very kind of a pecking order-tastic. Anyway, so basically what happened is a couple of years before they finally left, I moved back to England. So I moved back in 1980 and went to school in Ipswich, which is because uh, there was a boarding school in Ipswich but also because my grandparents were there I could go see them at weekends and stuff like that so that was really the um the reason that I ended up uh, there and I stayed there until uh I moved to London in 85 so I was there for about five years yeah well, really for I me mean. you know from sort of that formative I left when I was 19 and i had been there since I was 14 so that's really that you know when you're growing up isn't it really
0: Yes, absolutely. Kind of the, the formative years. And actually at that stage, because mm. my dad used to take us to football down at Portman Road. So mm. Bobby Robson's Blue My Army was kind of quite something really at that stage. Yeah, yeah. that's had right. They a great football team. So yeah. then we, yes, God, that's quite amazing. Because So so, sort of traveling around obviously didn't did damage you too much. I just read this book by Will Hodgkinson, talk about his childhood. He's just written a book about the 70s music scene. That starts with sort of granddad and finishes with grandma and in between you know he he kind of uh, highlights all those kind of slightly naff songs that we used to love (laughs) to hate in the 70s but he kind of gives them a bit of kudos and a bit of kind of critical awareness but his parents sent him away to a boarding school which was a bit of a hippie love fest I think so um it was quite interesting so what was your experience like with boarding schools at this stage
1: well so it was it was a sort of my it was it was i guess you'd call it a minor a minor private school right it wasn't kind of anything to shout home uh to sort of shout about but it'd been around for a long time you know thomas wolsey's got a big connection with ipswich right yeah. and i think cardinal thomas wolsey so i think he founded the school or his his uncle did or something but they they like to shout about it um but i think that really that was and in terms of what we might go on to later that's kind of one of the the first times where i kind of in a way, you know, felt a bit like an outsider, because I don't think you can move to another country, leave all your family and friends behind and and go to a boarding school main with kind of mainly richer people, right? So my parents were like kind of firmly middle class at this point, but we never really had any savings or money or anything like that. We never were obviously affluent. And some of the kids I went to school with, you know, were they were definitely they had nicer houses, the bigger, you know, so I think it was the start, you know at the age of thirteen being because it's a terrible time to. To move schools you know i think i had done the first two years of, of um secondary school and then i moved in the third year yes. um and it was really interesting because one of the reasons the school did really well academically is because they started doing their o-level syllabus a year early so my parents especially my mum who's really kind of really f- kind of focused on this type of thing you know she's an educator and all that kind of stuff right she kind of didn't realize so i went from being like quite you know good at school right you know um to being absolutely second set at everything at best right <laughs> apart from german which i could speak fluently and i was in the top set of german and just i was just a bit shit at everything and i was a year behind everyone so all of the stuff that i was kind of naturally good at like english history german i kind of managed to survive at everything else i actually was really interested in but had to work out like science i just i just gave up and, and it was because it was because it, it was the very early 80s there was no kind of um was no sort of sense anymore of like oh this kid's struggling you know he could be doing a bit better let's let's focus in it's just like you know is he being a problem no well let's just let's just leave him alone then so i just you know i just went from being like really one of the most able kids in the school in germany to being like literally getting four o levels is what i got i got english english history and german that's all i passed and i had to reset maths um so it was really fun so i kind of had this kind of weird thing of being like going from being quite good at school to being a bit shit and not feeling, not feeling like I fitted in. And um, because I was a new boy at the boarding school, I got kind of bullied for a year and that was shit as well, you know, and it's all, it's all the kind of, it's just really interesting about about the how how it all happened but at the same time it did get me away from my mum who i love so much but she's very um she's a very dominating kind of person right and uh, so it did help me kind of fly my own wings even though it was a kind of baptism of of uh, a fire for a bit you know so i kind of left home with a side parting, you know, and then kind of came back, you know, like a vegetarian sort of like <laughs> into discharge, you know, or whatever. Because there was a scene in Ipswich, you know, music scene. So the addicts were kind of really the the, the flagship band that, that were that playing. Um, but there was a load of other local bands. And um, so really it was the kind of making of me at the same time. Yes.
0: Uh, but so I think it's
1: the- I don't have any friends from school anymore. You know, do you know what I mean? It's very much a sort of scorched earth sort of thing there. I don't really Have that many sort of memories uh, a fond memories but um it it was a a needs to an end i think means to an end
0: it's 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 kind of weird sort of remembering those moments because you just realize it's kind of just a matter of survival no one has a great time at school for some Mm. you know and actually when you dig down it's like it's just like no that was just not a good period was it really and then yeah i know it's kind of strange so was the caribbean club running in ipswich at this stage because i that that's the one time i i did i came to a few gigs there Quite yeah I did um, and I did see Napalm Death, Extreme Noise Terror, and somebody else on a triple bill, and that was the only time I saw John Peel at a gig, so I was very excited. So was the Caribbean Club happening during your period there?
1: Yeah it was yeah very much so, and this is the thing right there were quite a few venues. There was the um the Gomont, which I think has been renamed now to something else, but that's where the bigger shows were. You know so that's where the Jam would play, or um who did I see there? Echo and the Bunny Men, you know that type of thing. There'll be this kind of regular parade of kind of. Rainbow, Motorhead, Girl School—they'd all kind of go through in the early '80s as well. But you had the smaller venues like the Mannerball Room, um, which is fondly remembered. Loved that place. Um, and yeah, the Caribbean Club, which was great because there was a band, uh, there was Nip uh reggae band or dub band called Jar Warrior, and they would um, either often host or sort of co-host the event. So it was—you know—you'd have a couple of punk bands and then Jar Warrior would play as well. So that was good. And um, so, so and I ended up playing at the Caribbean club a few times with, with sync later on. Um, I think the stupids did a show there before I joined, um, with conflict. I think that was a, that was a a big, a big show there. There was obviously inevitably a riot because (laughs) conflict were involved. I think, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, no, it was around. It was, it was around. Definitely. It was was great great to go there. It was, I I loved it. It was really good. And it was just, I think I liked the sense of, um, you know, I mean, you can't like music without loving kind of reggae and stuff anyway. And so for me, you know, I didn't have any kind of Rasta friends. So it was just really nice to, be able to go and hang out with in the same room as some some Rastas, you, know, you know, just like see what was going on. What were they doing? How did they, you know, how did they play their instruments? What were they doing differently? It was just a different style of just being really. And I loved it. I thought it was really fascinating.
0: Yes. Well, the 80s had a great period of Roots reggae, because I do remember at the UEA, they'd have those kind of, the whole list of those bands that came through like Aswad and Burning Spear and Misty and Roots. And then they'd have Sly and Robbie and the Taxi Gang would come and they would do those kind of three hour, three and a half hour evenings where they'd get a different singer just kind of front in this kind of the <laughs> rhythm section. And it was just awesome experience I mean obviously you know you, you know passive smoking. you even got stoned at the same time didn't you really but also I don't know if you remember but there'd always be somebody who would take a little child along to those gigs and stand in front of the bass bin with this little kid you know like and I just often wonder what happened to some of those kids because they would t- you know they could hardly walk and they were like God, I'm not sure if you're supposed to stand quite that close to a bass bin with a four-year-old but um yeah it's a, it's a weird <laughs> one, wasn't it? But yes, the smell of kind of dope was just extraordinary. Because, yeah, because no. for me, you know, like the 80s, it really, I mean, it was funny you mentioned the Gaumont. I'd forgotten the first ever gig I went to was Nine Below Zero at the Gaumont. They were such oh, a... Oh, right, okay. Which was quite an amazing one. But they, yeah, that's where the Smiths came to play, didn't they? And um, various other little bands. So look, 83 to 87s were the year of the indie pop world. So did you leave school at 16 or was it 18 that you, you went on? Or did you just kind of skip and go straight to London?
1: No, no. So I, I um, yeah, I, I stayed on. So I, I finished school at 18, did the A-levels, again, doing English, German and history. So I've only ever read, really, apart from maths, I've only passed three exams in my life
0: yes it's so good got to english, focus isn't
1: it i did an english degree as well so i've kind of just got those those things so it's very narrow sort of skill set academically um but it's something that's helped me with my own children now i can say you don't have to pass you know four thousand, you know subjects but yeah so i stayed on just doing be good that at
0: one just be good at one you know. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly you can probably survive with that yeah um and it was you know it was good because i was um what was i doing kind of you know well i got into sixth form and uh, i think i sort of turned my back on kind of like kind of that kind of new wave of punk that was around at the time for a little bit so i was massively into like the exploited and crongen were my favorites um and um but all of that like you know gbh and, and that kind of thing as well as the local bands panorama and black were my sort of absolute favorites but there was a, a bunch of others that i really liked and, and got to know slowly started finding my way into the kind of local music scene so that you know you do that kind of the record shop where you go to the kind of cool record shop and you sort of hang out and then you know you're desperate to just kind of like you know for them to sort of start having a relationship with you do you know what i mean you know where yes. someone you maybe walk in one day and someone goes hey you know you might like this or this is someone and you know we used to it was such a nexus then or a vector whatever the, the word is you know the local record shop which was you know um not, not maybe and uh, not andy's which was okay but parrot records which is where um sort of jim p and and some other people worked at and they were kind of all in bands and so it's one of those things it's a way of kind of getting into the local kind of
0: yes Um,
1: absolutely the people that know what's going on do you know what i mean and you hear about stuff so so i'd kind of i think by the time school finished i had this kind of dual life where i you know i'd finally got on fine with school that was all right i found my kind of crew um and everything that was good but i'd also started to you know not really playing bands i was just writing lyrics really or poetry that was my thing (laughs) very morrissey but um you know so i was um doing a lot of lyrics and stuff and i kind of had these aspirations of maybe playing i would kind of skirted around it there was a school a band at school um and he used to write the lyrics for them because they for, sort of, really, for whatever reason their singer didn't write lyrics and i'd really like being around that and then um uh tommy from the stupids went to my school as well he left he didn't do the sixth form there he left but he was two years below me um so i left school at, in fact we both left that, that school at the same time so um you know and i was aware of them and um yeah, so I stayed on. And then what happened is that I had a a year kind of in Ipswich after school where I was just hanging out getting just doing shit jobs and stuff because Mm -hmm. i again it was predicted terrible grades for my a levels. so i wanted to do um, american studies that was what i decided to do at university and without realizing there's only about four places in the country that did it and they all had only about 12 places so unless you had these really good predicted grades they weren't going to give you a slot but the the carrot was that you got to spend a year in america
0: yeah by then
1: i'd started getting into american sort of punk and and things like that by 84 that was very much on my radar um anyway didn't get it so i stayed in Ipswich, and that's when the whole thing with the stupid happened you know with with me getting more closely involved with them and and i finally got guitar and started learning that um you know and then uh, applied again to go to a university and ended up coming to london because that's where i really wanted to live so university for me was really a bit like you know like bread is a vehicle for butter <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> university
1: for me it was really just a way of moving to london um and kind of having a reason to be there that my parents wouldn't give me shit for um but really i just went and skateboarded and played in bands i didn't really do much at university i have to say
0: no but the stupid's been going for quite a while haven't they by then because they had um, a... mm, i think they formed they probably formed in
1: 83 i think yes Maybe 83, maybe 82. They did a couple of little lineup things where Tom was originally playing guitar. Another guy called um Jonathan, who was at my school, he um was the drummer. And then I think Tommy moved to drums. So they they've been together for a while, but not really that long. I mean, probably two years at the most by 84. I think what happened in around 84 is that they they heard hardcore properly or got into kind of DRI. So cause the first couple of demos, the stupid demos like the four-track ones that were recorded by that guy, Jim P or James Partridge as he likes to be called now, but he's he's one of the main guys from Ipswich, you know, without which, without him, almost none of the ipswich stuff would have happened you know he was, he was so pivotal to all of those um all of those bands extreme noise stupid all of the bands that played at uh, murrayside youth club there was a punk club called nightmares which again was was hugely important to everyone um and um he did the first couple of stupids demos and they were very slow you know very very slow compared to what happened later and then they recorded that um that that thing called leave your ears behind which was a cassette and i think that that coincided with me leaving school so that was the summer of 84 yes. i finished school and it was suddenly i had this really kind of like really traumatic not traumatic but kind of like in a teenage way like break up with this girlfriend this on off thing that was just kind of really not going anywhere it's terrible and um and uh just hanging out with tommy and um and and wolfie from the stupids and just kind of lit, getting into their you know they offered a simpler way of life should we say you know where you know it was just all about kind of junk food and um having fun and doing your own thing and, and being really creative at the same time and and but just really emphasis on just kind of you know it was the exact opposite of being a sixth former listening to the cure which yes. is what i had been doing at that point although i just do love those first three or four cure albums still but you know i was listening to the cure red lorry yellow lorry uh killing joke you know that type of thing i was kind of into that um and, and suddenly the stupids came along and, and I was like, wow, is this my imagination or is this four times faster than I remember seeing them last time, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah. And, and from then on, I was kind of all in with them really. So I did my year off. Well, a year off I was working in Ipswich, applying for university and hanging out with, with the stupids. Um, you know, and that was that. You know, that was great because I think Tom really. Although we we really don't talk anymore at all, but he, I go, I owe him an awful lot because he's two years younger than me. But he just had this kind of get up and go about him, and this kind of like, um, you know, he was definitely my, um, him and Wolfie definitely my way into the kind of that kind of punk rock underground that had happened that I kind of flirted with a couple of years before when I was, um, doing tape trading with people around the world and stuff. But like I said, when I got into sixth form, I just got a little bit more kind of arty and uh and it was good to know that you know by 84 it was all that underground punk stuff had really really kicked off and seeing yes. it which is getting bigger and bigger you know um just kind it's of a, fell into it really
0: it's amazing yeah because i know that so your university period i mean that kind of coincided with because uh, i've got you know like quite simplistic here but you know like there was a real indie pop scene between 83 to 87 which are the years of the smiths and then when they split up there was this kind of oh my god what's happening next and then ecstasy comes along there's a kind of a bit of a new wave of 16 or new scene of or new chapter of 16 18 year olds who want their soundtrack so suddenly dance becomes a moment doesn't it with the ecstasy world and happy mondays and soup dragons did you also have that kind of shift as well or were you still sort of very much into that Kind of American skateboard punk rock.
1: Well, okay, so so the, as you know, right, the danger with any of these kind of statements or you know kind of trip put things into boxes is that it's always not like that, right? so Yes,
0: it's definitely. I, I've, not. <laughs> I've <laughs> it's got a, a sweeping few, statement. I
1: know. I've got a few. I've got a few friends who are a little bit older than me, probably in early sixties now, and they used to go and see. um uh, I will answer your question in a second, but just as an example, they used to go and see, like you know, uh, the Sex Pistols or the Clash or whatever, right? Back in 77, 76, and and it's really funny because you know you read the history books, and there's always this kind of thing about this. What did they call it? This kind of thing, like you know, when Strummer joined the Clash, he wasn't allowed to talk to any of his old mates, and it was this whole kind of thing. I can't remember what they called it, but they, you know, and um and my mate Sean and um and and Mark were saying that they used to go to see these shows, and half the people in the in the in the room would be wearing flares and had beards and um you know hawkwind jackets or whatever there was no sort of day zero you're not allowed in here hippie fuck off it was just that yes. was all just complete bollocks right if you went to see any of those punk shows in 76 to 78 then a lot of the audience would be just you know art students or whatever or people that had you know just come from a thin lizzie show down the road right so it was and i think it's the same with with me so when i did that thing for the f- couple of years when i kind of wasn't you know actively well it's difficult to say really what, what i'm saying is i during the in the sixth formula 16 17, i did get into a lot more stuff that wasn't just punks so and what you would be, what you and i would call a john peel band right yes at the same time knowing that that literally means anything in the whole world but i think you know what i mean by that right so i did listen to a load of reggae i saw the third ever smith show i think we saw that the smiths played at the um covent garden rock garden that was either their third or fifth show, it certainly their first London show. So we caught a train down to see them because we were absolutely obsessed with Hand in Glove and the first Smith Sing, um Peel Session. Absolutely loved that. Um, but at the same time, I was listening to The Mob. They were one of my favourite bands around the time. That, that album of theirs that came out I was just like absolutely blown away by, um, you know, and, and so... And and so it, for me, it all kind of mixed in. And I think that really when I left school and kind of went down to university, I was the first band I went to see because I was like, I'm in London. Let's go see a band. I went to the Marquee and the Screaming Blue Messiahs were playing.
0: Excellent. Not because I
1: liked them particularly, but I just wanted to go to a show. And I used to, I also remember seeing, I, used to, I went to a few shows on my own sometimes just to go to a gig. I used to see, um, saw the Rain Parade quite a few times, um, X Mile Deutschland, um but at the same time you know my heart and and my kind of um um what's the word i'm looking for here but you know the the action speak louder than words thing the stuff i was actually actively doing at the time was was kind of founding you know playing in, in in a couple of punk bands skateboarding doing all that kind of thing um and and i just carried on doing that really all the way through to i'm guessing sort of 90 91 right you know but But for me, you know, my whole thing about music has always been like, you know, almost like pick a box and then try and make it as big as you possibly can. Right. So it's not like, you know, so painting outside the lines, whatever the phrases are, you know, so I was in a punk band. Right. But from about 88 onwards, we were playing country music. We had acoustic guitars. We were discovering the blues, but we would call ourselves a punk band. Right. So, you know, and, and so for me, I absolutely did not get into dance music at all right when i first started getting into anything that wasn't what you would call well anything along those lines was probably i had listened to um 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 Oh, De Mussolini, you know, the, the Daff at um at school, I loved that. I had the Deutsche Amerikanische Friendschaft, whatever Friedschaft, whatever. But the Mussolini uh, had a couple of their 12 inches that I that I absolutely loved. Um, but probably the danciest I got was probably killing joke <laughs> until <laughs> I, you know, until the nineties when I got into like the propeller heads and you know, chemical brothers and, and that type of thing. Right. I had a little brief dalliance with that. But no, I've never I've literally never taken any drugs in my whole life. I've never smoked. I gave up drinking when I was uh, 19 after drinking very heavily from the age of 14. <laughs> and um, again, I didn't start drinking again until I was in my 30s. I kind of gave up drinking for about 18 years. So all the time I was in a rock and roll band playing around the world, <laughs> I missed out on all the fun by, um, <laughs> by uh, you know, not 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 getting um off my head really
0: yes well it sounds like you know almost like brandon flowers from the the the, the killers i think he's he's quite clean and to be honest i never smoked because i was very heavily asthmatic from the age of four so it was always going to be you know, a ginner. and no, no, really on that front because it could barely breathe in the summertime. So that was always tricky. But uh, yeah. but being in London during that period, then mm-hmm. is this is you know okay? So there's this kind of north uh, North London scene, you know, with people like My Bloody Valentine and Silverfish and the Faith Healers, and then uh, the Carter Unstoppable Sex Machine. Did you get into that kind of? Was that coming onto your radar at all from? And then early lush and 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 lots of bands with phil king from who went on to be part of lush as well so he was in a lot of indie bands from the mid the mid 80s onwards
1: so i've got a few crossovers with some of those um so we played so my band sync that i ended up forming in late 87 but we kind of really got going properly in 88 we played with silverfish quite a lot um all over the country really we never toured with them but we'd often sort of turn up and they'd be there you know um and and funny enough i bumped into their guitar player in the oh. last sort of six months he does yeah he does um sound he does sound engineer now uh, gigs in london so i bumped into him um so saw silverfish and my very good friend paul cox runs um or ran two pure records right so i knew about the faith healers through him and he and his brother and a couple of people used to put on shows at the um uh, the white horse in Hampstead, which was they called it the sausage sausage machine i think they called it right. um so and and that's one of the many places we played with Silverfish, for instance, right? So they would they would do that. So that was the kind of the crossover we had there. My bloody Valentine and 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 like I mean, I've never heard a single song by My Bloody Valentine even to this day, right? There's there's these massive gaps, right, in my uh, in my musical in my musical kind of um, experience or whatever. And yeah, there's just a whole load of bands, and I'm not sure what it was. I was trying to think about this the other day, actually, um, because I think that I was. You know, cards on the table, super competitive, right? When it when I was in a band, like, um, but not in a kind of nasty way, but just in a sort of like, I don't know, it's it was tricky. If you have your sort of fifteen minutes and you're in the music papers a lot, which we were with the Stupids, you know, you're obviously sharing, you know, column inches with bands like the Darling Buds or you know, like My Bloody Valentine, shop assistants. I guess the prisoners were not the prisoners. The um, what's that band? Primitives. The girl with the primitives. Thank you. Yes saw them as well they played in my university actually um their guitar player was so tall they had to take a ceiling tile out for him to stand because the stage was raised and the ceiling was very low and i remember they had to take one of those kind of <laughs> they had to stand there i mean that might be wrong if anyone went to that show and they can but i just have that memory of like because i only went along because it's 50p or something
0: No, well, they um, could have put that they could have put that in final tap really couldn't they? yeah it been. was
1: brilliant it was it was classic the stage is only about six inches high it's one the, anyway um but yeah, so there's this whole whole bunch of bands that I've just never listened to ever, and and also I think the other actually no, I, I remember what it was. I I also for whatever reason, almost hated everything that was that was British and musical, right? Just just was not interested. It's like oh, there's a band the British, literally not interested, right? Um, at all, and which is completely wrong now. But I was so because I guess you got you you may or may not remember this, right? But if if in the eighties, right? Being into anything American for a British person was actually kind of a subversive thing, right? Now America has taken over the world culturally, right? It kind of arguably already had, right? But now it really has, right, thanks to YouTube and and all that kind of thing. My kids use words like elevator instead of lift now because they just... They just listen to Americans. It drives me absolutely mad. But I think at the time I was looking culturally towards America, whereas all of my peers kind of weren't at all, right? Other than my friends who were skateboarding, you know, my kind of the my tribe, as it were, were, but yes. people at university and, and other people like that weren't at all. Um, so we're in a baseball cap. you just got laughed at, you know, which probably might be due to the way we wore it. But, you know, it was it was one of those things where um it was almost like a sort of identity thing, really. Kind of like I listen to American stuff. Uh, 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 but that was a, I don't know, you're not nodding. So I think you're probably thinking I'm mad. But I seem to remember very much that this was not the way everyone else did it. Everyone else was into like English indie pop. And that's what they did. Students that I went to university with, you know,
0: because no, I because I, I remember sort of with the American thing. I'm, I'm in, Internally, I'm nodding because it was <laughs> what was quite interesting. Was, there were bands like, you know, Sonic Youth, the Butthole Surfers, Husker were mm. kind of my favorite band for a while, you know, up to sort of 86 to 87 and, and sort of. There was something kind of, I don't know, but either exotic or exciting about them. So even enjoying the work of Lydia Lunch, you know, and things like that, I do remember just there was a very little filter at times thinking, yeah, that's American, I love it already. You know, John only has to say this is from America, a small town, you know, and sort of having done this show now for a while, sort of going around America and sort of being sort of fascinated with all these places that are are little satellites. It's not joined up like in the UK. Mm -hmm. It's just like we were there and that's what we did there. But that was a scene in itself and we're not because it's the distance involved isn't it it's the, the thing about america you know you've got that um that scene with rem and the b-52s down in sort of is it georgia athens georgia you know and that was that yeah. they had a sound there and then you know you go around the kind of country and the whole you know it's like they're very separate little islands and it is yeah i mean it was always something kind of i, I think john Peel was so important to my life during that period and i did you know enjoy it and if a band came over from america they often got you know a lot of kudos because it was like god no one wants us back at home but we've come to the UK and suddenly you know we've got a tour and it's brilliant everyone loves us and then we can go back and sort of make out that we're big in big abroad so it's yeah it is quite yeah I don't yeah I do I do understand but I think I was a bit you know I was also really anything that John Peel played whether it was a guy called Gerald or the Bundu Boys or you know hardcore stuff like Extreme Noise Terror I did slightly say yep that's good if John played it but then he played a lot of 50s kind soul music which i remember on the kent record label that i would also go and try and discover like um ella washington i remember thinking god that was through john Peel, or aaron aaron neville i remember him playing earth angel and thinking right i must go and buy that record so that was my slight kind of obsession with john Peel, slight obsession but um yeah you know it was like if he played it would must be good so that was it really so um mm yeah
1: yeah, so yeah no, absolutely but you mentioned something earlier as well which is really interesting exotic right and i think that this is for me that's one of the important things when i first went to dc in late 86 the stupids were doing the tour and i went out a week or two early because i had some friends uh funnily enough you like each think don't you
0: yes oh god yeah. yes
1: Okay, so I so my first ever American kind of contact was Stuart, the guy that became the base player in Shudder Think. And he was kind of like he was the, the the main guy really. Um he came over via he was an old pen pal of Tommy's. Um and before we got Shudder to think together, we sort of um we were friends. So by the time Shudder were kind of uh a fully formed sort of unit, I'd known them for a couple of years. And it was quite funny because uh the stupids had a much higher profile, right, than you know, than not necessarily in America, right? But you know, kind of like via John Peel, right? And uh, the sounds enemy and all that kind of stuff. And so i think we're just starting out really when we were like, you know, already all over the kind of indie world or whatever. Um, and so when we got this tour, um, Tom had organized a tour for us through this guy um in New York who did um who booked us a tour. It was about three weeks. We did the East Coast down and then up the center to chicago and then and then back so we didn't go anywhere further west than chicago we we just did kind of the eastern half of the country um but Stuart from shut the thing played bass for us because we didn't have a bass player on uh in the band the, the band stupids were completely chaotic right um but yeah so Stu played bass for us um and so what happened is i went out a couple of weeks before to um stay with him really just to hang out and and uh and that was good because i wasn't supposed to be playing guitar on that tour and martin the stupid guitar player decided very very close to the the, the uh the start of the tour that he wasn't coming to play guitar on the tour uh, after all and um and he's an astonishingly good guitar player so anyway i got a phone call from tom back in England saying, hey can you play guitar on the tour as well which i'd only been playing guitar for about a year so that was a bit of a Know but it's kind of thing you do when you're 19. Anyway, the point is I met all of those people from DC, right? The guys that would go on to form Fugazi and all that. And they were already, in my view, legends, right? They'd been in Rights of Spring and Minor Threat and Double O and all these bands that I absolutely loved. And so I just met them all, right, for two or three weeks before this this tour, and they were all lovely. But we one of the reasons I got on with some of them so well is because they were big anglophiles, right? And I hadn't really thought about that, that they would be, but they were all hugely into the Smiths, the Jam like joy division and so when i'd say that, i'd seen the smiths right i'd seen the style council at that point um and it was really interesting because i then spent the next few years kind of seeing the way this went right and i always found that my american friends were all massive smiths fans all my english friends were big rem fans right and yes. yet to me they were really very similar kind of band right In a in, moment, they were they were very much kind of mining the same yeah kind of uh, vein as it were right but there's this idea of the exotic right and i think that um you know if i watch a film in brazilian right a brazilian film i miss out on all the stuff that might be like a real stereotype or bad acting or kind of caricatures or you know things um because i don't know anything about brazilian culture really i'm just concentrating on the plot and the way it looks and it's the same thing i think that with the american stuff is that i i and probably you, the stuff. That one of the things we liked about it was this this whole otherness about it, and the fact that it comes with almost no baggage culturally, really. In terms of it's just it is what it is. And I think that that's kind of the way, one of the reasons that all those bands like you know Husker Do and all those bands that we all loved back then, we didn't know that we had nothing along the lines of oh they're just a band from Minneapolis. Yes. You know, and that might have some pejorative kind of you know that might have some sort of thing like oh some band from Scunthorpe or whatever, right? <laughs> Whereas if it's a band from you know, I don't know north london south london bradford whatever you might have a view on that right like i know that this whole thing about oh with all these bands from ipswich you know who'd have thought it all these bands coming from ipswich it's like why the fuck shouldn't they come from ipswich you know whereas if it's some buttfuck town in america we don't know that that's what that's a you know we don't have any view on that right we just listen to the music and i think that you know i really kind of came across that you know that we all especially people like us who are kind of romantics about music right you know you Almost create your own backstory, don't you? From lyrics, from like snapshots of lyric sheets, maybe, or you know, stuff that you kind of hear. And and I think that was the thing for me that why I wasn't interested in in English music at all. And in a kind of quite a um, looking back on it now, I mean, hugely unfair, but quite a sort of um quite a strict way. You know, if it was English, I wasn't interested at all.
0: Yes, I know. I think also that that <laughs> that thing about being sort of the local music scene, I think one's quite damning. You know, because I, I mean. I still, I'm not sure. Anyway, like the Farmer's Boys, the Higgs and the Serious Drinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like, you know, I just thought, come on, you know, this is this is tragic. This is a <laughs> cultural wasteland here. So, um, but perhaps if they were from America, I would have liked them. I still think.
1: Well, exactly. I, you might have done. I mean, this is the thing. You Who knows, right? That would be the test, right? You might have done. Yeah. That was, it was, was it Bax Records? That was one of the things, wasn't the it? Backs
0: Bax Records, yeah. And they were. And they, and also, I, I don't know, you obviously kind of, Had a good relationship. I saw, found they they were a bit sort of up their own arse a bit really in in the Norwich little scene because it seemed so small and also at the same time there was no band that seemed to really do it. I know the Farmers Boys signed to EMI, but they still weren't, you know, major players where they? they didn't really sort of break out of that moment. And and watching videos occasionally, like I have done recently, the Farmers Boys trying to make a video. It's like, wow, that is a bit weird, isn't it? Thinking that at the same time, the Smiths were happening. And culturally, I suppose I still think that certain areas in you know, especially this area, which I can I suppose talk about, is still a bit culturally back backward. I don't know how they do it in America because obviously that's that's so much more isolated in different places, isn't it? So. You know, but I know I know that thing, you know, with with Husker and Minneapolis, and you think, oh yeah, and Prince is there, and that's amazing. They must, they must just be rocking every night. You know, they yeah, don't yeah, even yeah. know each other. You know, they, as if they would. You know, Jesus, no one would know Prince. But it's yes, God, how did we get on there? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: don't know, We've gone down the rabbit hole.
0: um We have actually but, gone. But yeah, you were yeah. asking
1: me if I got into kind of dance music, and then also about kind of my bloody Valentine. And it's just again, it's one of those things where I've got these these huge huge. I, I mean, I still have not heard. and i'm not joking i've not heard story to heaven all the way through right i will recognize it now at the start i know what it is i'm not a huge zeppelin fan anyway i don't like robert plant's voice too much right i love the music but there's that whole bunch of stuff and i'm one of those people that is like kind of um in a non-extreme way because nothing i ever do is extreme i think that's one of the things i've kind of analyzed about myself i'm always quite in the middle ground right Mm. but i've never I try and do the contrary thing, right? Sometimes to my own, you know, sometimes disservice to my own I'll never watch a movie if it wins an Oscar, right? Not until like years later. I I, I tend to like discovery music from 20 years ago. So literally now, so I now like Sonic Youth, right? I never liked Sonic Youth before. I saw them live a few times because you had to. I met them. They were lovely people, but I had no interest in listening to their music. And then they became part of that whole kind of 91, the year punk broke and they started to become one of those bands that made loads of money out of music. And I, I wouldn't even have called Sonic youth punk really at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but my daughter loves Sonic Youth and I've just got into them now. And they're, 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 I absolutely adore Sonic Youth, especially the late period Sonic Youth. Right? I don't like the big albums, but I, the last two albums, I think are just phenomenal. But it's one of those things. That's just how I how I work, right? So if I see the Darling Buds on the front cover of Sounds the whole time, I'm not going to listen to them. Why would I fucking listen to them, right? And it's really funny. We did a record, my band did a record last year with uh, recorded with Pat Collier in London. Oh, and, yes. I was too, and we know so many people in common, right? And I was like, How have we never worked together before Um, is what I was thinking. And then I looked at all the bands he's recorded. Well, not all of them, because he's recorded literally every band. But I was like, well, in the 80s, when he was really doing this thing, late 80s, early 90s, all that kind of 10, 15-year period from, say, 84 onwards, he recorded every single band that I didn't like, you know, without (laughs) listening to them. I'd never listened to them, and I probably really liked them. But all those bands, I'm like, oh, yeah, he recorded literally every single successful indie band, pretty much. You know mm-hmm. he's 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 a, he's a legend. That guy he's he's fantastic. But it's just looking through his kind of production credits. I'm like, oh, that band I've forgotten about them. I remember them. I remember. So I've got this list of records I need to listen to. Right. Um. And I think probably the only and again I was when I was thinking about doing this chat with you, I was thinking about intersections and stuff. So one of the exceptions that rule is Tallulah Gosh and Heavenly because matthew their drummer was a massive Stupids fan he yeah. loved hardcore and um we got really friendly with him um obviously you know it was you know it's tragic you know what happened to him and everything but you know we would um not hang out with them actively but we were on each other's radar and he was the guy in between that kind of brought the two bands together um and it was brilliant my daughter likes uh, likes heavenly now as well so i was going to email uh, uh, amelia and um let her know about that you know we're not in touch particularly but it was just that they were one of the only bands that, that i even knew about that were british because matt was a nice guy and that was this thing like uh, you know i was listening to amy ray talking to you the other week about um, um from the indigo girls and she was talking about how she's going to be too kind of like confrontational and stuff because it all starts with dialogue right seeing yeah. the other person's perspective and i think that that's um that's the thing as soon as i get to know anyone I tend to love what they're doing, right? So uh, if I was hanging out with my buddy Valentine, I mean, they're all legends now, right? But there was a time when they weren't. They were just the same, playing the same shitty clubs we are. Um, you know, um, I'm sure they're just a lovely people. You know. Yes,
0: well, I've got, yeah, I must admit, I've I, everyone's kind of broke me down really because because even I did I did an interview with you know a member of Johnny Hates Jazz, and I mean, frankly, I, I still think the music's awful, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he was such a nice guy, you know, it's like actually, yeah. you know, so that thing about filtering, I suppose it's that thing when I heard about members of um, The Killers and, and they mentioned all these bands I like, but they put those other ones in that you think you can't put Duran Duran with, you know, no, that's wrong. You They, they, they don't fit with The Cure and Joy Division and The Smiths at all. What are you doing? You know, but I realise, you know, A, t- time has passed and B, they're not worried that. This is Duran Duran and they mean this to me, which is everything that I hate. And, and you know, it's like, no. And it's like, yes, of course, it, it, it really doesn't matter. But we were very tribal, I think, yeah. that during the sort of that set, especially the 70s period. You know, there was heavy metal in our area and you couldn't like to turn without getting beaten up. It was all status quo, heavy rock. And um, yes, if you were a mod, you were, a, you know, some sort of basically a puff. Basically, and who should get chased down the road and kicked? So it was kind of, you know. And then, you know, you had in the '80s. I didn't realize there were so many different scenes from New Paisley to sort of Psycho Billy to Narco Punk to you know, Indie Pop, and 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 these all didn't sort of mix, did they? You know, you had to stick to one or the other. But um, but with age, you suddenly flirt with different, sort of, you know, different little subsections, which is. One of the nice things about getting old there's got to be there's gotta be a few good things about getting old <laughs> hasn't there really yeah. you, can, you can let go and listen to Depeche mode and think actually they are quite good. I don't know why I had such a thing against them.
1: <laughs> I think you're absolutely right that the word tribal is such an important word for um for you know anyone who who grew up in that in the 80s in terms of teenagers going out and listening to music. I mean even just in Ipswich the fights between like the soul boys and and the punks and and everything like that you know i managed to avoid almost all of it but you know even i just was kind of peripherally involved with just some horrific stuff you know people attacking each other with bike chains you know at the bus station it's just it's just terrifying um and and you're right you tended to not go between i mean one of the reasons that i think i really liked um Uh, the stupid, you know, before I kind of ended up joining them for a bit was, was because they didn't dress like punks particularly. Right. Because everyone in the punk scene, pretty much everyone dressed like a punk. Right. Which wasn't how it started out in 76. Do you know what I mean? At at, at all. Right. You know, that, that whole sort of, and I think this had the same thing happened in America, didn't it? When you kind of got um, American punk started, maybe on the coasts, um, you know, New York, LA specifically, the kind of LA one where it's kind of arty lots of kind of, know just just kind of arty kind of uh free thinking people got to go and did this thing and then before you know it kind of you know it kind of becomes a bunch of muscled up sort of skinheads you know hardcore is born and all that kind of stuff again i'm sure that narrative is, is much is much too simple but in the uk you're right you know the way you dress kind of defined what pub you went to right you know what music you listened to um sometimes what you ate you know all this kind of thing and certainly you know what kind of time you could be walking around the streets on your own at night and and i think that one of the things about london was that it was by the time i moved there in 85 it was a little bit more well it's always i guess a bit more you know forgiving and stuff like that you know so you could you you wouldn't necessarily get beaten up just for looking one way in in certain parts of town um you know, but tribal is absolutely the way it is. I mean, my daughter again, she's been listening, she's been discovered, she's 17 now, but we know for a few years ago she got into the into the cure and she went through all their pack catalogs. You can do that in five minutes nowadays, right? You can yes. find out every single thing about a band and move on to the next one in a week, right? Um, but I remember I, I was saying to her at one point when I was, she was listening to like something kind of eighties and poppy, late seventies, eighties, and I said, Well, you know, you can't listen to that period um without at least trying the police. Now I'm not a police fan, but you got to listen to the police a couple of times so she listened to the police and she listened to the cure and everything and um there was this discussion we had and i think at one point the pun- there was two punch lines in the conversation one of them was where she went what sting was in the police which was i thought hilarious because she knows of sting outside of she didn't realize yes. he was the guy from the police which otherwise hilarious and the other one was that she didn't uh, she couldn't get her head around the fact that in like 1979 1980 police were much more popular than the cure
0: yes crikey you know
1: and 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 i was like the police were the biggest band in the world in like 83 84 right the cure were kind of broken up by 82 and but now the cure are massive right and the police don't really exist and but it's just this again it's just that you can dip back into things without any of the baggage but also without any of the kind of knowledge of the interactions between the bands and you know the way they all so it's not surprising that if it's the killers you know liking good stuff and Duran Duran, because they're younger than we are, right? Are they? Or are they Yeah,
0: oh yeah, much younger. Yeah. Frighteningly yeah. younger. <laughs> uh, so you, you know, it's yeah, it's a bit annoying. Um well it's interesting. actually there's the, the one thing that you mentioned there was that which was really interesting was that um a lot of the ba- a few of the bands I've spoke to who who started in punk by the end of the seventies had got really disillusioned with the audience and sort of looked at who they were playing to and who was queuing and went oh I don't want to do this anymore and that was yeah because everyone was dressing like Sid Vicious and it's like well that's not punk you know the, I you know in 70, 75, punk wasn't looking like Sid Vicious and acting like that it was like so it was interesting it was like so that's why the band almost finished it was like well I'm not going to do this anymore because People have missed the point it missed, missed the point of it. And it was kind of interesting that thing about hardcore, because I guess it was in the 80s no it wasn't hardcore but in the the 80s you had age of chance didn't you who were the other band who slightly crossed over into an indie dance scene and i don't know if you've seen it but it's quite traumatizing. have you ever seen the film which came out last year woodstock 99 where yeah you know yeah. You, that that's that's when it gets to the point where you think yeah that's got to stop hasn't it really we're gonna we've got have to draw a line it's gone it's gone out of it's gone out of control really hasn't it so, that yes. was like the
1: logical, the logical conclusion to a lot of that kind of, yeah, to that sort of presence, that kind of, yeah. I it, don't it, know. That was it, it was terrifying. The whole thing actually. It, start,
0: it, see, it starts with the stupids and ends up with you know mass destruction mm-hmm. and people being chased, you know, around the, an air force base. You know, it's just like trying to lock you the door. It was quite amazing, though. I have to say. So um, yes, it does. It does leave you feeling a bit traumatized by the experience. So but I um, think the, the the thing is
1: for us, right? So I, I I totally know what you're saying. When when I moved to the UK in 1980, that was the height of the exploited. They just finished that Apocalypse Now tour. Um, you had bands like you know Anti-Pasty, Infra Riot. You know the whole Oi! thing was really in in full swing. Um, and I liked a lot of that music, but I think I was I saw a few years later that. The kind of american hardcore thing which was kind of over by 84 so by the time i kind of discovered minor threat and things like that they kind of split up and that, that would they'd all moved on to the next iteration but you know bands like the descendants um articles of faith you know those kind of bands they were exotic but also when i saw pictures of them they didn't look like all of the people in Ipswich or London that went to punk shows, right? So yeah. it was almost like, although some of the people from San Francisco and New York and LA from 76, 77 might have despaired at like the way Articles of Faith looked and maybe thought that they were a little bit reductive or whatever, right? To me, that was like, oh, my God, look, they they look like I look, right? I'd never had, like, the Mohican and the leather jacket. I've never had a leather jacket. I might have had a studded wristband at one point for about five minutes before it got lost, but I've never <laughs> wanted to look like everyone else. You know, I've never wanted to look like... I've never been desperate enough to try and deliberately not look like everyone else but I've never kind of you know walk into the same room and go oh great everyone looks exactly the same I feel comfortable it's never been like that really you know I did like the kind of smell of hairspray and the shows you know kind of that was for me the kind of the romance of going to a show but I never wanted to look like anyone else and I think that's the same with one of the things I got on really well with Tom you know he never looked like that either um you know um from the stupid so so for us kind of moving into embracing the american band i mean who's could do that like they just come off like a a shift working on the bins or something do you know what i mean when they when yes. they first started coming over to the uk and for us that was like that was amazing <laughs> so like well that's that's great you know i love that kind of thing and it did seem a little bit less kind of you know i don't know just kind of macho and and although obviously it had its moments
0: Yes, well, but, Bob you know, Bob Bob didn't look very sexy in in the eighties, did he? Until he sort of lost his belly. So, mm. um, but the bass player always looked quite good with his moustache. Uh, but... Greg,
1: classic Greg, <laughs> the the guy that looked gay and then was the only one that wasn't. It was yeah. just hilarious. But yeah, they were. But yeah, and I saw them a few times. Not super early. I mean, like I said, I moved to London in eighty five, so I saw them a few times. And uh, yeah, no, they were they were fantastic. I still remember the first time hearing as in arcade. I think it was just before I moved down to London friend tim from school um just put it on and that whole kind of something i learned today the bass side another, yeah. another baseline that gave me the i just thought oh that was as another moment where you kind of got this head rush of just like this is going to be the best thing i've heard for a very long time yes. um that, that was that was
0: phenomenal 90 seconds of excitement so look God, with, yeah. with your band so when did they i mean you formed was it 88 89 with sync um
1: yeah so i moved to london in 85 formed a band um because i was in the stupids but they weren't my band i was kind of just helping out really i did live vocals and i ended up playing guitar and singing and so then people who were late to the band like 85 88 Thought it, probably thought it was my band and i think that caused a bit of tension because it was actually the drummer's band and he was wrote all the songs and anyway i left in 88 in the meantime i formed this band called bad dress sense that was my band and i was writing all the songs for that just playing guitar um we we did a record for um vinyl solution which is the stupidest record label as well so i did an album with um with bad dress sense and then that kind of fell apart and so in in 87 um and we haven't really touched on john peel but peel was a big a big you know in, in everyone's lives but he was specifically massive in, in my life um he was um not a friend at that point i wouldn't ever say john Peel was a friend of mine but he was he was someone that i had a lot of contact with around that time uh, through my friend uh william at college william melling who's one of the unsung heroes of this um that kind of whole extreme noise terror heresy yeah. stupid you know getting all that national attention was purely <laughs> it might have happened anyway, but William was the guy that dragged me along to to listen to, to John taping a show. And he said to me, hey, uh, your band is from Ipswich, right? And I said, uh, yeah, if you mean the Stupids, yeah, they're from Ipswich. And so he said, well, bring an album along uh john loves stuff from ipswich he'll definitely give it a listen you know at the very least um so we went along sat in on the peel show which was amazing just listening and he would talk to us between the songs and then um you know the red light came on we'd have to be quiet and then he kind of you know, do his and then you know turn around again so that was amazing at the end of the night um William said, "Uh, John, this is my friend Ed. You know, he's from a a punk band in Ipswich. Oh, yeah. Oh, interesting like that. So I gave him a record. And um, literally the next week, he just started playing that stupid album song by song every night through. And he phoned me up. And just said, look, you know, are you registered with the PRS? And he told me how to join the PRS, told me all about all this kind of stuff. Um, and then said, you know, what's the band up to? And I was like, well, the band's not up to anything. Tommy's moved to America is what I'm thinking. I didn't say any of this. Anyway, so Tom came back from America and 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 the stupid started up again um but in the meantime i'd done my own band and um what happened is um peel phoned me up or john walters usually would phone up and say hey we've had a cancellation can one of your lot because you knew i was in lots of different bands at the time can one of your lot play uh, do a peel session and i said yeah yeah he said how about bad dress sense and i said yeah sure didn't tell him we just split up and so <laughs> i got a new band together and that was what became sync right so we must be one of the only bands that's ever done appeal session as the first thing they ever did, right? Without being like a new side project of, you know, Jimmy Page or something, right? No one gave a shit who we were. So mm-hmm. I think we're one, of the, we're one of the only inconsequential bands to ever literally do appeal session as their first, um, almost the first time playing together. So um, yeah, um, but what we decided to do is myself and the bass player decided that was 87, like sort of I know, September 87. By 88, we decided we were gonna do a proper band I left the stupids in the summer of 88 and sort of concentrated on sync really from then for the next right. sort of four years. Sort of solidly. So were you with,
0: was that Paul Duncan you were with? At That's
1: right. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So I went to college with Paul. He was older than I was. Um, and he was one of the cool kids on campus. He was, uh, he wore a fringe leather, suede leather jacket, and he was in charge of the, uh, the psychedelic society at university, which I think meant that he did a kind of uh, a disco every two weeks at the students union, um, which I never went to because I never went to the Students Union because I was contrary and uh, <laughs> also didn't drink really, so there was almost no reason for me to go. But Paul's a really great guy, and I think the influences of my sort of American hardcore stuff that I was completely and uh, completely was the way I'm looking at, absorbed into by then, and you know was the kind of like you know because I'd been to America a couple of times at that point, and you know so we were just we we're just part of that whole thing, and he had these other influences which were much more kind of from the kind of nuggets side of things um you know he loved the 13th floor elevators and and um all of those kind of psychedelic bands He was a massive cramps fan um we sort of intersected on things like the misfits which he sort of had got into as well so i think it was a good thing really he introduced me to loads of stuff um around the time and i think that that really helped because you know, as soon as, you get, as soon as I get kind of known for something or good at something, I kind of try and run away as quickly as possible, right? So, again, you know, so all the time that I was in the stupids with Tommy, we, at that point, had almost stopped listening to hardcore we just listen just to acdc or aerosmith we got into Aerosmith and an acdc because i'd never heard them right growing up in the uk wait, who's going to hear aerosmith i i wasn't i wasn't into no. heavy rock you know and i think tom was saying to me he, he moved to america that time when peel started playing the stupid he'd moved over to um to california and he said he would go for like a barbecue on the beach with his mates his punk rock mates or whatever and they take um take a couple of acoustic guitars and they'd start playing songs and everyone would start singing them he would like i don't know what the fuck are you singing they'd be like oh this is boston this is america this is zeppelin and he doesn't he didn't know any of these songs right and he's like and so we missed out on this fm radio experience right that for better or worse a lot of american kids our age kind of grew up knowing that stuff, really. And I always thought that was one of the reasons the American hardcore bands just sounded much better than the English ones, because they had this idea of what rock music should sound like, right? You know, uh, whereas we didn't. You know, I, I grew up, you know, I, I probably released two albums before I'd heard any rock music in my entire life. Really? Yes.
0: That's that's interesting, isn't it? Because I think you know, I, did, I did manage to interview dear old Kirk Cobain when they came to the Norwich Arts Center supporting Tad, and he mentions all these American yeah. bands, you know, and it's like that and the Beatles, you know. So it's like yeah. you know, they they digested all this quite yeah. solidly. It wasn't like they just missed it. It was like, Oh yeah, Boston, yeah, we love them, America. You know, and again it's yeah. like, God, oh, they're a bit naff though, aren't they? I mean, you know, to, to, you know, and everyone loved, you know, I don't know, Pete Town uh Pete Frampton comes. So there was. Yeah, this yeah, sort of... there we go. Yeah, so, all my yeah, friends in
1: DC are massive fans of that. It's a live record. I, I've still never heard it. I don't think.
0: It was just. It was very exciting. I think the most exciting thing with that record is the guy who comes on to introduce it, and he has this kind of American <laughs> voice. He has this American voice, and he introduces it in such a way that you know, when you're about twelve or thirteen, you kind of keep playing this one like you know. I just, you know, it's just it just sounded like exotic. You know, it's just yeah. like oh, people talk like that. You know, in in my neighbourhood, everyone's a bit you know comes from the countryside and has a bit of a weird twang so there you go so yes so yes so then suddenly (laughs) sync sync are are a thing in the in the in that period of sort of well yeah so where did you kind of fit into the scheme of things at this stage because it's kind of one of those i know i i mentioned earlier these little scenes but often bands Mm. can sometimes be at the wrong place at the wrong time can't they you know and speaking to a few people you know the the word luck often comes in it's like oh yeah because most bands are on un- slightly unlucky though I often say well you did release an album you did get on the front of the NME but it's often you know they'd get on a record label and suddenly the that record label went bust or the person who signed them got another job and suddenly everyone else went why have we got this band we're just gonna get rid of you lot and so often you know but sometimes it doesn't it sometimes lines up and it goes quite nicely and then suddenly it all comes to a horrible you know crash somewhere down
1: line. <laughs> yeah no you're absolutely right and i think it's always good to i think most bands could say they were in the wrong place at the wrong time or well, the other thing i i like to say is that you know maybe just a little bit ahead of the curve that kind of thing you know that like the stupids were kind of split kind of really done and dusted by late 88 i think probably early 89 and if you think about you know punk going global in 1991 or something like that you know you've got arguably the biggest punk band in the uk then they would just have been even bigger three years later. Of course, the reality is no, not really. Doesn't that's not a that's not a foregone conclusion at all. Mm. Um, um, I think with sync, what happened is that, and I think this is really important to kind of stress this because I listened to, like I said, I listened to the Nick Evans one uh, show that he did with you, and and the bit that I kind of intersected with him completely overlapped was just this kind of sense of what music means to me and how I never for a second ever was expecting to make money out of it or make a living out of it um although i did you know end up going until i was 28 before i had to get a job right i was living on very low overheads it has to be said yes. right? but you know i kind of scratched the living out of it for sort of 10 years from when i first started to sort of play guitar or something and, um but you know um so th- there's, there's never been a kind of master plan it's just that I have to do it right and I don't mean that in a dramatic sort of arty sort of way I just mean that you know that's what keeps me happy right it's playing music right um and it's been a very long time since I did it sort of full time but I do it as much as I can now but back then it was that kind of golden period where I had sort of 10 years to sort of see what I could do and the world didn't you know didn't quite connect with my with my genius we say <laughs> so you know I ended up having to get a job but I think um where Sync fitted in, in in 1988 was that I wanted to do something which was um, you know, which was me, right? Because Tommy had um this kind of formula for the stupids, which was, you know, he writes the songs. He's very, very good at that. He's just great. He's a brilliant musician, he's really good, he does drum and bass now, has been doing it for years. Again, he's just really good at that. That's that's his thing, right? Um, but again, it was his band. Kind of he owned the keys to the to, to that sort of house or whatever you want to say. And I wanted to do my own thing. Um and I just really recently started to, to discover some of this music that i'd never listened to before right so again you might not believe this right outside of a couple of things on the radio i'd never listened to the rolling stones okay until i was about 21 right never listened to them right and i was doing a summer job in london at the university there's about six or seven of us stayed over and we could just work in in london it's better than going back to um, norfolk where my family was living at the time from Wisbeach. right um and so I stayed in London. And one of the guys there, this kind of um, classic sort of proto sort of ro- uh, ro- uh, what's, he, what's that guy from Primal Scream called Gillespie? Is it Roddy? Robbie Roddy, I don't know his name, but Bobby, Bobby Gillespie. Bobby, yes, that's it. Right. Yeah, this guy looked like Bobby Gillespie, right? So he looked like one of the long riders or something. He had his winkle pickers and his kind of long hair and everything. And I was talking to him about music, and he was like, okay, so hang on a minute. So you've literally just come back from touring America and Australia and you've never heard The Rolling Stones. And I was like, not really, no. And so he lent me sticky fingers, right? Which of course I absolutely loved. He lent me um a couple of Tim Buckley albums. Um around that time I first watched um uh what's the thing woodstock the movie right uh, and yeah. i just was entranced by uh crosby stills nash and young right and and so basically i was like i have to start playing this music this is this is fucking amazing right so i became one of that people you know and i got into the blues and all this kind of stuff right and i wanted to have some sort of way of making that work with with what i was kind of known for and what kind of gave me a small a very limited platform which was playing punk rock right so basically with paul on board and he was you know, he knew all about that kind of stuff, right? He had lots of Link Ray records. He loved all kind of surf music and stuff. So we kind of started doing a kind of punky thing with those other influences kind of brought in. Um, and, and 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 really, I think that's what we did for the next sort of... Think never split up. We kind of changed our name in 80, 92 to another band, uh, to a different band. And then our drummer, unfortunately, died. And so we kind of ground to a halt. We don't quite fit into your five-year life no. cycle. But, but we kind of... <laughs> But the, the Sync as an entity sort of did, right? 88 to sort of 92 probably is 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 the period of the band or something like that. Um, but again, you know, so we 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 um, and we started off playing because um, it's like, what do you do? What's life after the Stupids, right? Because you know it, 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 they're not they weren't a massive band, but they were they were at that time they were big and they were the biggest band in my life at that point. It's like, what do we do next? So you go searching for the next kind of scene, really, and that's literally just when all those bands like. Mega City Four, Senseless Things, Ned's Snuff. I don't know. There's milk monitors. There's a whole bunch of them. You know, um, Midway still.
0: Um, did you Did you get into thrive. that kind of that slightly Grebo sound? That was um, yes. Gay bikers on acid, a crazy head, and uh, pop willie. No, itself.
1: definitely not. So we played with um, we, Stupid supported uh, Gay bikers at the um, at a show in London, which was great and they were really nice it was really funny we were we we're having some problem right i think the roadies or the stage managers had been because we didn't like um we had no con uh connection with the mainstream at all really um everyone was accusing us of selling out in the kind of holier than thou kind of a narco punk scene that where we kind of not really come from but we you know where a lot of our friends like nick maybe had come from right nick evans um and and yet uh, we knew nothing about kind of the mainstream at all really so we're playing the what was it? it's now called the kentish town forum it was the town and right, country club yes. then right and i think it's the first time we played anywhere like that and um so we turn up late obviously you know because we were so completely untogether and we got this big warning from like um you've got a half hour if you play more than one minute longer we're going to smash your drum kit up or something like that it was something really like really heavy and i was like we don't want to fucking play here i felt bad just being there you know um we were getting paid 250 quid it wasn't like you know we were getting paid a lot more at that point than that it's not like i said we weren't looking i certainly wasn't looking at this as a career right so we're almost feeling like we're doing them a favor because we were the hot band at the time sort of thing you know and and gay bikes and acid were much much bigger than we were but basically i remember um rob our roadie slash manager person and that's the very loose one (laughs) loose <laughs> description Luke's, he was we were up in the dressing room and uh, and um i was just like those fuckers you know they said they're going to smash our drunk it up if we and it wasn't this is nothing to gay bikes now this is just the staff yeah. at the venue right um and rob said something like um well let's go and talk to mary about that and i said well i don't know who mary is but i want to speak to her and i want to speak to her now <laughs> and uh, rob's like yeah he's the singer for gay bikers and acid i was like I just didn't know who he was. I had no idea. So we went upstairs to see him. He was lovely, dragged me downstairs, took me all the way through the venue, right the way through to the venue, banged on the door. I think it's a John Curd promotion right and so john curd was in the office and he said look the guys have been sort of threatened by the the backstage people we don't want this this isn't very cool and the guy's like yeah super you know and it was lovely but i remember walking through the town and country club with this guy from gay bikers and acid and everyone literally the whole room's going oh my god like pointing at him sort of thing (laughs) it was lovely It was very cool but you know again we just had no concept of any of this kind of stuff you know so um so but but yeah so we had to find our own scene and and gay bikers and acid were were massive at that point crazy head were kind of we just had no interest in like that kind of stuff at all we very much saw that as being like kind of a rock and roll thing right crazy head all that grew was coming from a rock and roll place right and for me it's like hardcore was like so not roots music at all it wasn't that's not what we were doing really which is ironic because when sync formed like months later we went straight back to like playing you know country or surfing stuff or you know kind of blues based music as as a small part of what we did that was our kind of output but that was just really me discovering music really you know yes. i discovered like you know i became a massive grand parsons fan within Within months, you know, all this kind of stuff and kind of embrace that whole sort of the idea of this kind of big vision of like uh, the kind of this expanded kind of American music thing. Right. And I wanted to lay Well, yeah, why don't we we can mix hardcore with country. Sure. Anyway, so we kind of we ended up playing a lot of shows with Snuff and all this kind of thing. But very quickly from 89 onwards, um, thanks to our friend Andy Turner, who was in this band, The Instigators, who were kind of, again, kind of anarcho-punks sort or of stalwarts from the early 80s. Um, they are very kindly invited to go on tour with them in Europe. They were doing a quite, quite a long tour, probably five weeks or something like that. Instigators were pretty popular in Europe at the time and we played with them a few times with the stupids uh, it's one of those stupid things because of the uk music press the stupids became really popular for a year right all mm. kind of high pro let's say high profile right because of peel and the Stupid and the, uh, the music press whereas the instigators were an actual proper band that had been around for a lot longer and probably done arguably more than the stupids i don't know i mean who knows right but we used to play above them in the uk but in europe you know they were really really popular and and so when sync went on tour with them um it just opened my eyes to a whole new way of doing things. Um, And almost from that point onwards, really, for the next, until I gave up music, I was much more focused on, on Europe, right? It just seemed real, more real, rather than, well, who's famous these 15 minutes, you know, because the music press, there was a weekly music press, wasn't there, right? We had Sounds Enemy, Melody Maker, we had like Record Mirror, and we had some other stuff, right? And you had to have something new almost every week, right? Not quite, but there was the pressure on to like, what's the next big thing? So it meant that you could reap the rewards of that, but then also you could just be dumped, right? Um, And if you had been together for like three years and hadn't become you know, hadn't been blessed by someone in the press, then you were like, we'll just give up now, you know? And it's like, you know, some bands don't even work out what kind of band they are for three years. You know, it, it depends, right? Yeah. Um, so I just found that Europe was this kind of network of squats. And I love that whole thing about collaboration and doing stuff, you know, underground, you know, away from the, the glare of the public. And um, I just felt it was a much more kind of, I don't know, not realist, probably authentic. I don't know what that means, right? But it, for me, it's, it, it's much more where I felt happier. And so, so we ended up with a situation where, I remember when us and the census things were on uh, Vinyl Solution at the same time, for a, for a year or so, they were on the same label as us. We both released a kind of mini album the same week, and I went back to the label a couple of weeks later and said, "Um, oh, how are we doing? You know?" And he goes, "Oh, you know, we've sold out." He said, "It's really interesting. You you and the Census Things have both sold the 1,200, whatever it was, the first pressing is like 1,200 or something." He goes, "You sold about 20 in the UK, and the rest were all sold in Europe. And the Census Thing sold about 100 in Europe, and all the rest were in the UK. And and it seemed that that's the kind of the way it went for us. We just almost gave up with the UK, really." In Europe, you could play a proper set, you know, because of course we were trying to play punk and play acoustic stuff and some bluesy stuff and some country stuff, trying to mix it all in. I mm-hmm. felt that our, <laughs> our our live shows were more of a sort of you could, if you could stay for the forty-five minutes for the or an hour, right, you would experience a whole bunch of stuff that if you just came in for five minutes at the front, you'd go, oh, they're that kind of band. Whereas actually, if you watched the whole thing, you'd be like, oh, fucking hell. And and so, you know, we we were just a for me, it was the most musically satisfying thing I've ever done. It was brilliant. We did 100 shows a year, maybe 150 all over Europe. We did a seven-week tour with each other to think around Europe. We brought them over in 1990. I think we did 53 shows with them or something. Um, we did loads of stuff. It was just, it was absolutely fantastic. Um, and I still had that kind of confidence of from being in the stupid, that kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? You know, confidence based on- literally nothing i mean no real ability other than the ability i'm probably a good organizer and a, a sort of decent songwriter you know i've all, i'm always the worst musician in any band i've been in mm-hmm. um but i hadn't really you know thought that was a problem you know at the time it, it doesn't matter anyway but the point is it was a kind of one of those kind of like you you know it was it was much more than music right it was uh it was it was something. It was just a way of, of living, really, and doing this and meeting friends, going around, going around and, and and sort of making new friends and seeing just the crazy, crazy shit that people do in squats in Copenhagen at three in the morning. And you know, there was some very strange things happened, but it was oh. brilliant. It so was you went really to, you good. You went
0: to the famous place in Copenhagen. Was that Christiana? Oh god. There
1: was oh we, a- no. So Christiana is is a is a is a part of Copenhagen. It's a kind of small. So we didn't play there. We played at, um a big squat called. The um I, well I won't pronounce it properly but it's umdong's who's it or something I don't know it's just a big old squat um we played squats all over Europe you did know did you go did you, meet the,
0: did you meet the X in Holland did you did they come into your radar played
1: in Holland a few times we met the guys Hetty who um was in the conqueror or something you know, concurrent whether they were an the organisation I can't remember what they're called we didn't play with the X I don't think but we might have done yes. I, we, yeah I just can't remember a lot of it despite not ever being drunk i still have forgotten vast amounts of it uh but yeah no it's, so, it was really so, good you know
0: so 91 you you do your album the vega mm-hmm. tables this is in you you record this in purple studios great yarmouth
1: great yarmouth yeah that's the thing so that was our last album so we did um we did the first album another another love triangle i think it was 89 um we did that in huddersfield again through the instigators because they were kind of based in huddersfield so we they they uh, had a studio they went and obviously it was cheaper than london we did that um we did a mini album in between at the place called the house in the woods down in surrey which was good we recorded that with um and we recorded our second second single called um um On the tracks Feeling Blue and and the mini album with uh, Ian Burgess, the guy that was the producer for Naked Raygun. I think he probably did some Big Black stuff as well. Um, He was over doing some stuff for Vinyl Solution. He did Lay Thugs and some other stuff as well. And that was um, obviously a privilege working with him. He's like a proper, proper guy. Um, But all of this stuff's quite, because of my relationship with Vinyl Solution who own the kind of, they sort of own those recordings, uh, none of it's available on the streaming services at the moment, right? All the vinyl solution stuff, um, which, yeah, I won't even go into that now. It's just, it's just completely unnecessary and it really should be. And I suspect it probably will be at some point, but it won't be anything to do with them. Anyway, the last record vegetables, <laughs> which is just vegetables, but um, vegetables is because the way Brian Wilson said it on um, it's on, it's one of the songs that was going to be on the smiley smile on, sorry, on smile. Um, and it was eventually released, I think, on Smiley Smile. They did a, a version of it. Yes, they, I chow down on my vegetables. tables is where they said it. So we decided to call our album that um we we basically what happened is that was we recorded that originally we we're going to record that for vinyl solution um we had it all lined up we we're very excited because vinyl solution had given us a because the record the records had sold pretty well right you know we'd sold a few thousand ten thousand or whatever of, of the records they'd done really well no one was losing any money we were touring constantly so we weren't like making the music press in the uk particularly not really peel was playing this we did three peel sessions you know that type of thing it was all it's all good um and so vinyl solution said oh you can have i can't remember the budget it was something like six thousand pounds which seemed like a load of money um and so i was like well let's get dale griffin to produce it that would be amazing because i did i think at that point i'd done eight peel sessions right and dale had um, produced most of them and then we went from like suspicion mutual suspicion you know he would be like oh great a bunch of idiots on skateboards who can't tune their guitars through to like after about the sixth or seventh one Going, well, they're clearly here to stay, at least for the short term. And then on our perspective, going, I mean, Walters, John Walters, from me, I, mean, I remember moaning about Dale or something at one point early on. And he's like, oh, don't worry about Dale. He's just an old mop the hoople. That was his expression. <laughs> now, I'm pretty sure John Walters and they both sadly passed away, but I'm sure John Walters was just being, he was just trying to be nice to me, right? You know, but by the time we finished working with Dale Griffith, we just absolutely loved him. He was awesome. And, um you know, I was had become a massive what the hoople fan and so we said fuck it let's get um to remember vinyl Susan said hey who do you want to produce this record let's get a producer and i was like all right yeah let's get the guy that produced london calling and that sounds amazing not knowing that guy chambers was dead is it guy guy stevens i keep saying guy <laughs> chambers it's really annoying it's fucking robbie williams <laughs> yeah. guy stevens right he was dead and also he didn't really produce london calling he just threw chairs around and set fire to stuff right but um i think bill price did that um and then Rob phoned me back. This is, again, Rob, who used to be the stupid road manager who ran Vinyl Solution. He then went on to run Touch and Go and Matador in the UK. Um, really, really good guy. He's a very close friend of mine. He phoned me out and goes, um, Ed, that man's dead. You need to come up with another person. So I was like, all right, fine. What about Dale Griffin? So Dale had agreed to do it. We sent him the demos, and we we're going to get him and Over and Watts. We're going to produce our record, which is insane because it's a it's – it's a record of weird songs, right? Like there's nothing rock, there's nothing Dale Griffin about that. There's nothing Mot the Hoople about any of the stuff on that record. There's about four punk songs. The rest of it were weird, like strange acoustic things or kind of it was a very weird record, right? But he was up for it. And um and then what happened is that a friend of ours, oh one of our friends got beaten up by one of the other bands on Vinyl Solution. That was the thing, right? There was a kind of there was a kind of all day somewhere, mm-hmm. and uh, in, a, a, in a parking lot in Milton Keynes, one of the bands on the label um allegedly beat up one of our friends right i say allegedly but they did well he could be a bit of a pain as well but anyway so i went and talked to vinyl solutions said "Look, i'm not really comfortable being on label with with a band that just beats up people you know blah 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 and and i felt i think i had more of a stake in the venture than (laughs) they obviously thought i did um you know having been around for for a few years and made them quite a bit of money via the stupids and 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 stuff like that and they were like well look you know we're not going to let someone dictate to us because i was basically saying i'd you know be more comfortable if that band wasn't on the label and they were like well tough (laughs) you know (laughs) so i just was like well you know basically it's us or them and they were like okay you know we don't like ultimatums so you know cheers bye and i was like okay fuck it yeah so i so we left um and that meant that we then we had the studio time booked in great yarmouth um, but we couldn't afford Dale on Overend anymore. So I think Paul, the bass player, put in a thousand pounds. My granddad from um, uh, up in uh, up in East Anglia put in a thousand pounds. We borrowed off him and paid him back. And we spent two thousand pounds recording the album Vegetables in uh, in Great Yarmouth, nice. which is a very long answer to a very short probably wasn't even a question right but
0: yes and this you was know. this was kind of bizarrely this time of year january from from the 3rd to the 24th in in yarmouth so um there you go. with richard the famous richard, uh,
1: yes richard hamilton so do you know richard
0: only well, vaguely you know but not enough to really say i've ever you know but i've I've kind of seen his kind of presence around the place in in sort of different musical worlds so um yes he, he became a bit of a legend in the local music scene with purple studios didn't he so um that's right purple yes. studios
1: named after um it was originally purple rain studios because yes. his 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 I don't want to say first wife but she they were they were separated when I first met him and then he, I think he's been remarried now for many years but his wife at the time was a massive prince fan and one of his ways of trying to get her to turn their house literally their house into a recording studio was he's like well so I asked her if I could if we called it purple rain he thought he he thought that mic sort of swing a bit because when we went first because you know that band Bleach I think you've had Bleach on yes, the show haven't you Bleach, Sally yes. and, and Steve yeah so I don't know Sally but I know Steve quite well he, he played drums for um, one of my later bands for a bit he filled in after our drummer died actually Um, but he they'd done some demos at this place in, in Great Yarmouth and we're like who the fuck goes to Great Yarmouth to make a record and they're like yeah yeah but you know it sounded good so I phoned this guy up this guy Richard the legend you know and uh, you know we went and did a um, we went sync went along and did some demos there and i think it was one of those things where you've got a lot of songs that you know are not suitable for a record right but you want to go and record them to scratch the itch get them yeah. out right and we basically went and we recorded um i think we had like five or six blues songs we had like a muddy Waters song um howling wolf song that we were covering you know killing floor things like that and then we had three or four blues songs we'd written and then like two or three punk songs that we were demoing for the next record right and so this bunch of weirdos show up Where we all used to wear pajamas i had like a krishna haircut and we had the beads the whole thing we looked like a bunch of just very strange people right and uh especially for then then we turn up and basically do like about three hours of blues kind of stuff and then then we just have like three or four punk songs at the end and i remember him turning to me at one point about three quarters of the way through the session kind of going what kind of band are you So he's literally just like almost affronted like what what are you doing like this right and i was like well this is just what we do you know to us it seemed completely normal i mean it was we didn't normally do that kind of split of material it's just that we wanted to get all the blue stuff recorded and then just mm-hmm. release them as the occasional b-side or on a compilation we're never going to release it as a thing um, but anyway that was funny anyway so then he moved his studio a couple of times to out of his house and we stayed re- recording with him i think for you know probably till the mid-90s we, we were going up to, to 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 there to record um and we recorded vegetables there which went really well i think we had two, two weeks or something we sort of lived in the um you know it was when the iraq war was going on so we'd sort of finished recording and then watched the war because it was the first war which had been like you know televised live you know so it was a pretty weird time just kind of it finishing is. recording and then watching the war on this tiny little kind of eight inch black and white telly in the uh in the in the in the I say the rec room or whatever it was Richard had set up this little kind of you know unit with a microwave and a sofa you know and then we'd stay there but uh
0: yeah it was like it was like rock fields but on the east coast <laughs> so yeah yeah, yeah i wish i have to say jan january in nine yeah january must have been bleak as hell actually it, it was bleak
1: yeah and th- th- he'd moved out to um a kind of industrial unit as well so it was like an industrial estate on the edge of the um, pleasure beach at yarmouth mm. and uh the only good thing was that uh, kind of like uh, whenever it got dark which obviously as you know would be like five in the afternoon you know if you were lucky um we could go and literally clear the cobwebs because we would work a long and long time in the studio there we were young right so we would do like i don't know 15 hours a day just constantly doing stuff he'd go home sometimes just leave us recording there and things um we go down to the beach and just the north sea would be just crashing down i remember standing on the pebble beach and just you know just needing that kind of communing with the with the kind of just the kind of the force of nature it was one of those things where it's um you can't ignore it it's just the the ocean is crashing down on you like that and it was so good to be able to just go out of the studio walk about two minutes and you just got the ocean there just you know uh being (laughs) oceany being impressive and cold and you know you sort of kind of get a a bit of inspiration from that and it was yeah it was good it it, it
0: would definitely wake you up in january so yeah so then so then when the album comes out what happens with the band at this stage do you because it seems like you soon sort of all sort of part waves
1: no so what happened was that we got that released on um a german label right so so what happened is that we got well we left final solution i was gonna say dropped we didn't get dropped by final solution at all we threw our toys out the pram and walked off with our noses in the air um and um and then realized we'd recorded this album when we were looking for so we decided to record it because we had it all booked i mean this was literally weeks before we were going to record it it was a stupid thing to do but again this wasn't you know we didn't have a kind of this wasn't it doesn't matter so we recorded it and then searched around. We we had a few chats with, um, I think we talked to Rough Trade. I think we might have talked to Nick when he was running Elemental. Maybe not. I'm not sure. So, no, workers' playtime we talked to. Yeah. Um, we talked to another guy called John Sherry, who you'll be uh, pleased to hear is my current drummer's dad. And he used to manage um oh, i can't play in the Argus. what's that Argus? what's that band
0: uh, wishbone ash
1: wishbone ash that you've mentioned several times because your brother so he used to make he used to manage wishbone ash as well and the yes. flying pickets but he started up a record label too and but then eventually what happened is our friend anna who worked at our distributor in germany in berlin she was like oh my brother christoph he's started up a record label um he really liked your shit, right? Because he loves the Beach Boys and he loves all this crazy country stuff that you guys like. And I think he'd just be into the whole kind of what well, we'd say now, the whole vibe of this this chaotic stew that you put together. And so I sent Christoph a, a tape and he just phoned me straight back and was like, Yeah, this he called it this crazy recorded thing that you've done. And um, he put it together. We didn't realize that Christoph was the biggest indie booking agent in in germany right so he booked navan all the sub pop bands lemon heads all of that lot he was the booking guy right and so he'd started this label and he had um hole was on the label yola tango us um the band that i always forget that the singer i can't i can never remember their name they're really big and there's an s in the name and the singer goes out into the audience on a big see-through ball oh flaming lips flaming lips yes there is an s in the end right at the end. <laughs> last letter flaming lips so there's all these bands There was quite a few of them and they were all really quite high profile you know um because he either um released records or he licensed them from their label and released them in europe right to coincide and he's just a really really lovely guy we released the album with him did really well um did a massive tour again a massive european tour um and that was the i remember that was the tour we went on where we left for the tour and Nirvana were a little band and we came back and they were the biggest band in the world. Right. Yes. Because that was, that was when Nevermind came out. And, um, we were in, um, South of Germany and Paul Duncan, our bass player got um, a stomach infection. So we left him in hospital because our Roey Dave could play bass. We went and played the Czech Republic and Hungary with Dave on bass. And Paul went to Berlin cause we were going to meet, we we're going to circle, circle back in a week and meet him in Berlin. And when he was in Berlin, Nirvana would turn up because it was like you know you hear those stories about the Stones playing Oxford Union after they got to number one because the show had been booked the yes. year before or something like that. So Nirvana were in the process of doing this kind of fairly big but still you know a club tour of Europe, like playing six to nine hundred capacity venues, and um and Paul was hanging out with them in the dressing room with Christoph who was running our record label when I think they got told that they just got to number one in America. Uh, you know, yeah, it was it was crazy. So we kind of met up with him it's so, a hey loser you just you you, you missed a whole week of the tour he's like i was hanging out with nirvana you know we like <laughs> we weren't sure who was more who was more jealous about about that but uh so you know we did that so that was so we did that and then basically what happened is we weren't really sure what to do next and i think that Christoph was like look you know i, I don't really know how to how to market you or whatever the phrase is you know you've been playing these squats forever right i want to move you up the kind of value chain or whatever he wants to call he wanted when is to play bigger venues kind of the equivalent of playing the college circuit in the uk right he wanted to do that with us and he goes but i can't really do that if you're going to keep playing all these squats right because he would be constant he would say a band should play four or five shows in germany right we play 30. right and he would you can't play 30 shows in germany right and be the kind of band i want you to be and we're like well you know we've been doing this for a while now we're up for a change that would be good and so for some reason we did he said look why don't we just do the next album do a completely acoustic record Yola tango have just done that and it was really a really good idea for them and we're like yeah well, that's cool you know you have to ask us twice to do an acoustic record we just need an excuse to do it you know so we did this album which we which was we called naked but in the if between recording it and releasing it, we decided to change the name of the band, right? Um, you know, we did some sort of personnel changes that then unchanged themselves and we ended up back with the same lineup, but it was going to be a fresh start. And he's like, Yeah, I can work with this. This is good. So essentially, we all now a brand new band, right? And um, mm-hmm. and that's so that's how Sync finished really. So sometime around '92, we sort of became um Big Ray, which I was named after my um my favorite writer, Raymond Chandler. Um Because James Elroy, in an interview, called uh, Raymond Chandler Big Ray. And I thought that's quite a good. And it's a bit like Big Star, which are one of my favorite bands as well. You know, and just, you know, finding a band name, even in 92, was hard. It must be impossible these days. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You know, something like that. And so that's that's really where SYNC went. You know, from then we stayed actually as a band. We just really changed our name. We played a few gigs in the UK after that, supported all. And we played with Chuck Profit and we did some other stuff. But then sadly, like I said, our, our drummer our drummer died um, and um, you know we just we'd been doing it for a long time at that point and I think money had run out and my wife at the time was being an absolute uh, should we say less than supportive of um of
0: yes. my music
1: and so it all kind of we kind of just knocked on the head really about then really 93 94 we yeah. sort of just kind of ground to a halt
0: but you do feature on that album Naked ursula um, pank who ursula pank
1: yes do you know ursula pank she's in the third well, I, did,
0: eye band. I, I did an interview with her because no Urshula, did you really yeah because ah. obviously you know you got to interview ursula haven't you because you know she has a great story because uh, you know she was in that particular band but um of the other interests i've got a few i suppose but um east Anglian fairs and festivals of the early 70s and mm. uh She, there's a, yeah, the Barsham Fairs that started sort of 71 to 75. And um, yes, there's this beautiful photograph of her. I think either walking through Beckles or going around some labyrinth, And I was always mesmerized with this picture. And it's like, it turns out to be Ursula Pank from the Third Ear Band. So I sort of, and she lives in Norwich or no, she lives in Norfolk, doesn't she? And um, is in the sort of some orchestra in this area. And so I did an interview with her and, um, you know, I was really excited because it was like, you know, she seemed very underwhelmed by the whole kind of rock and roll experience. But I just thought, you know, she's this, yeah, I, I you know, you know when you see a photograph and obviously you realise, you know, it's you know 40 years old and the person probably doesn't look the same again obviously unless they've had a lot of work done but it was it was just a beauty and then they looked just a bit weird but you know yeah, yeah. It, it was just like god it was kind of mesmerizing seeing this woman you know walking through beckles leading this procession i think it was in 75 and then sort of finding out a bit more about her so yeah so how did you so how did you get to work with Ursula?
1: Well, I tell you what, I would love it if you could send me that photo because I'd love to see that. That would be great. Um, the reason we got in touch with her was because when we did, when we did Naked, the the what was going to be the next sync record, we had uh, decided to use um this guy Ruop, Rupert, right? We'll call him rup because that sounds a little bit more rock and roll than Rupert, but he's an amazing engineer and he was um he Paul Duncan, right, the bass player in the band, had been saying for the last like three or four years, whenever we come to do a record hey why don't we get my friend Rupert to do this record with us he's an engineer and I was like you can't do a record with someone called Rupert it just does it does you know it doesn't work right and and so I sort of and also Paul got treated very badly by me in terms of like you know having a, a say about what we did and stuff like that so he got his own back in other ways and we are still very very close friends but at that point i was like fuck off paul we're not going to have some guy called rupert do our record anyway he will me down paul's great at doing that he'll wear you down so if he's got an intro for instance he'll play it if he's got a, a baseline he wants you to play he'll play it every single sound check for three years until you finally go all right paul what was that baseline can we use that and he he'll wait right he's really patient so he um he said uh rupert yeah he can do our next record he's really good i said all right look get him to and um, send us a like, what's he done what's he fucking done i don't know what he's done and so paul came up with this this cassette right he's go, Well, here's his kind of show reel you know his kind of demo thing of what he's been doing and i didn't know that he'd been working at air studios in london doing all of the biggest bands in the world so basically the first thing on his show reel was um like robert palmer then it was the stones because he worked on steel wheels out in the caribbean and stuff like this right. and i was like oh my god and then i'm like why didn't you mention this guy to us before (laughs) and he said i have i've been been telling you about him for four years anyway the short version of that is that roop decided then to do the record with us he's very kindly because he wanted to get and do an end-to-end the whole album end-to-end because working at air you're always going to be a junior person you know if you're 25 or something like that you're not going to be bossing the whole thing because there's always someone older than you who's been around longer and he wanted to do start to finish the whole record mix it everything get it done and and release it right um and so he said he'd do it. He spent a lot of time working with, with strings, right? Because one of the things, Air Studio is, is one of the only two or three places in London at the time, and certainly now, that's big enough for a whole orchestra. right? You can't you physically get an orchestra into a lot of recording studios, as you might imagine. So he had a load of experience recording violins, cellos, and all that kind of thing. And when we were working on the Big Ray record with him, because we did it a Purple, but um, Richard sort of just came in unlocked and showed us the thing and, and Rupe engineered it for us, which, is, which was great. Um, And that record sounds amazing. And he just said, hey, it'd be great to get some cello on this, you know, on this two or three songs, something cello and some violin. Um, Who do we know? And and Rich, um, I, I, I over the years really came through with different people playing saxophone for us or via or um, piano and stuff but he kind of was i don't really know a cellist right and i said like, okay i'll tell you what i have got someone i could call and um, remember i said when i when i got into the stupids in 84 as i had this kind of tough time with this ex-girlfriend and it was like having a a lovely kind of simple version of what the world to kind of get into with the stupid so i basically called this old girlfriend because her mum um jesse ridley was a um, violin teacher from ipswich or kind of outside of ipswich and i just said hey you know it's me how you doing (laughs) all good (laughs) conversation does your mum know anyone in the great yarmouth area who might be able to do a bit of cello for us on a record and um she goes i'll tell you what let me call you back so the next day we got a phone call oh yeah my mum says her friend ursula can um would be up for it and it was really funny because it was like she's she's a really great musician but she's done some rock stuff as well you know it's a bit like um oh it's a bunch of weirdos in a recording studio give that to ursula she'll be fine with that (laughs) and so um so we sort of phoned her up and said oh hi you know um jesse um blah 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 and she said yeah yeah, i've got a phone call that's why don't you come out and see me and bring bring the songs and bring a cassette right and we'll have a quick chat and everything like that and of course we didn't know who the hell she was we had no idea who she was we just knew that she'd done some music right and in that sort of you know we were still quite young we're like well anyone old who's a hippie is clearly not you know a bit bit crap right you know they're not you know i didn't have any of that appreciation of stuff i do now right yes. and we went along she was absolutely lovely went to her house as i just remember it was this a classic sort of lean the countryside it was a bit kind of a bit hippie it's lovely she was super nice really nice i think we just played her the stuff on the acoustic told her where we we're coming from in terms of the song um, and the instrumentation um, and because rupert was comfortable talking that kind of thing you know he could talk the talk right and uh he could so, so she knew that she, hopefully she knew she'd be in safe hands rather than and i think it was i think what it was is one of her kids i seem to remember something about one of her kids was like oh they've been on john Peel," was the thing that kind of opened the door a little bit so again mr Peel coming through for us you yeah, know in, in all of the most unusual ways because he would um, have
0: loved that he would have loved the third ear band when he
1: yeah so. of course that's the thing so she's peel her sons or her kids whatever is peel and you know they know the sinker on you know being on, on peel a lot so she came along i think two or three days later and um just spent the spent uh, yeah half a day so i think she did cello on two songs and she did a bit of violin she goes i'm not really a violin player but i can just do some some textures <laughs> to the odd note and it was absolutely brilliant it was just wonderful and it's still something that you know we've looked into her more since and we're like wow she played on a record that's so cool and uh it was amazing having her there it was really good
0: Yes. God, that is, a, that is a really nice story, isn't it? I know it's kind of amazing. She's still, she's still there doing her stuff, isn't she? Bloody hell, third ear band. It's all go. So then when once that album was done, mm. Big Ray, then, then what happens to the record? And Because this is on City Slang. So did that go down well at that stage?
1: Well, what was interesting, right? City Slang. Uh, Christoph, the guy, really liked it. Okay. He... He, <laughs> you know, he You know when you have these kind of conversations where you're talking at obviously at cross purposes without realizing it, right? He said, "Why don't you do an acoustic album?" We said, "Yes, that sounds like a brilliant idea." What he actually meant to say was, "Why don't you do a novelty acoustic album, mainly of covers, that's a bit twee and quirky that I can then use as a transitional record and then we'll do something heavyweight and serious afterwards." We just went and did the proper whole album of serious. What we felt were really good songs and he's like yeah this isn't quite what i was expecting i was like well don't tell us after we spent two weeks recording the bloody thing you know anyway he really liked it he had a real problem with those distributors because a lot of his other output at the time was a bit heavier you know and they wanted the next whole record or they wanted the next whatever and so his thing was like um I'll get you on the tour. You can support screaming trees or something. That would be the good way for Germany to be introduced to, you know, the new look Sync slash big Ray, right? That would be the thing that fell through. Some other stuff fell through. the meantime, we were getting offers from our old buddies, hey, come and do another tour, you know, around the the squats or whatever. And so we were like, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do this. And then basically the short version is, he never got us a tour together It just never really worked he had problems with his distributors who were from belgium or poland or something and they were like he's like yeah they're mainly into death metal so they don't really know what to do with this i was like well but you asked us to do this record right and so so in the end we we then spent about a year and a bit kind of doing the odd show we went to france we did a tour of france and uh, and we did lots of other stuff, um but we didn't do anything really big with him. And then eventually, we came to this thing where we had a meeting with him, where he was like, um, "Okay, I think what we're going to do is we'll just do another record quickly. Let's just put another record out." And then we got a phone call from him saying, oh, "I've had another rethink. I think we're just going to just drop you. Basically, we're not going to do it." He was he was really nice, and we we stayed friends. But I remember years later, he contacted me because he was doing a sort of twenty years of city slang, and he wanted to do a big show down in London at the um, mary you know down at the south bank yeah and i and i helped him because a friend of mine was working for a big dot com in germany and they they were looking for some sponsorship money and so i put the two of them together so when the show happened um christoph um you know invited me and, and my wife jackie we went down to meet him and everything and uh, it was a good thing they, they had like you know calexico lamb chop um schneider tm there's a whole bunch of bands i mean the roster of that label is pretty phenomenal right um, yeah. uh flaming lips were headlining you know it was a big it was a big deal uh built to spill were they playing is that what they're called built to, yeah i think yeah. it's built to, all of that lot right they were playing and um these are people who used to be our label mates right until we got dropped and he could and i remember him coming up to us and sort of going you know hey how's it going bigger and he and uh, he turned to one of his friends or something and he goes oh, oh this is ed he's, he's his band released the what, what I've long referred to as, was it the the undiscovered lost classic city slang release, right? <laughs> and I was like thinking to myself, well, that's nice to know, but you just fight you dropped us, mate. It's like, it's only undiscovered and unknown because you, because you decided to make it that So, you know, it's one of those things where I think that he probably might have handled it differently. Yeah. But I think at that point we just think, oh, fuck it. So we kind of tried to soldier on for a little bit, but then, like I said, we did we did some stuff we actually supported um uh christ oh yeah we, you know um anton don't you from bad moon
0: yes i remember you know anton, him yes. right
1: anton Ginny, and oh, i hate myself for not remembering this paddy as well they were lovely because we we were basically getting they were doing our pr and they absolutely loved the record. Ian Watson from the NME was a massive fan as well. So we did get some sort of you might say traction or whatever, right? So it did do quite well here. um and Ian Watson's I met up with him before um since then, and he said that 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 big Ray record was the way that he got into kind of all of this Americana this old country stuff this wilco and and all those kind of things was, was that was the his gateway into that kind of thing um which is nice to know <laughs> you know but it's still kind of frustrating that because i think we felt we'd, we'd done a good record it's just one of those things that you know as we say it was it was uh this is the hard luck story that you referred to earlier yes the, know.
0: i know it's just amazing anybody ever makes or has any success actually because it is yes yeah, yeah. it is you know i don't know listen to that petrol emotion stories you know it's like oh my god <laughs> just so (laughs) close and then just oh then so you know it's like you know the their manager or the manager at the record label at the time just said i'm really sorry but paul mccartney wants me to work with him and i've got to say yes to him really don't i and um the yeah. people people who'll take over will have no idea about the band, so they'll probably you know, so good luck, you know. It's just like, yeah, they just got shafted shafted really. But then, so what happens to your musical kind of direction after uh, naked? What what happens for the the, the next, so, yeah. kind of, the next well, period?
1: So what we did is we carried on well, we carried on really, but I decided at that point, you know, because again we're talking now post-91, right? So a lot of my back my a lot of my friends then, because I kept in touch with my friends from America, right? And a lot of them and even in the UK, actually, bands like The Census Things got signed to a major label. I think um, Mega Megacy 4 got signed to a major label, you know. Um, but certainly in America, you know, Shudder to Think got signed, Girls Against Boys got signed, Jawbox got signed. They all got signed to these major labels, you know, sometimes for lots of money, not always, but sometimes. Yeah. Um, I had some other friends, the dam builders, who aren't really known over here, but they were kind of they were a great band. You know, Jonas Policewoman. Do you know her? Yes. Yeah. So she was the violinist in this band, the dam builders, that my one of my other bands that I'm going to talk about briefly in a second toured with and um, they they, the Dan Builders got signed as well you know along with each other to think they shared a drummer as well I think at one point um, but all of those things were happening and I was just a bit like yeah you know that isn't really what punk was to me that wasn't what got me out of my Bed in the morning when i was listening to punk and you know i was much more listening to like scrappy sort of angry moments all these bands became really good right you know they were fucking you know meticulously super tight doing this kind of strange time signatures and you know pushing the boundaries in their own way but for me i was a bit like this isn't really what i wanted punk to be so i carried on doing big ray but at the same time i decided to do a new punk band called chocolate and we did um we did, I think, th- three, two or three albums, we did Chocolate. And so what I did for Chocolate was I got the most ridiculous band I could think of. I got Wolfie from The Stupids, who long since left The Stupids, uh, got him to play bass. And the thing is, in Ipswich, everyone knew that Wolfie, his ex-girlfriend, I'd married, right? And so it wasn't like that we were ever kind of at odds about that but we kind of were at odds about that right so it was this idea the two of us being in a band together again was ridiculous right and then i got john rusco who's the guitar player from big ray who's a phenomenal guitar player um and still is he's amazing i got him to play drums so i got the best guitarist in town to play drums and then formed a band with my friend who everyone knew we had a kind of uneasy relationship because of you know the or whatever and so but the point was we just did a really shitty scrappy kind of punk record um and in the end, chocolate actually ended up playing, you know, we did quite a lot of stuff, right? And we did a few albums. Peel played there. So I got a great story about Peel. I was listening to him one time in the sort of, I don't know, about 94, 95. And, um, and I remembered that he loved getting faxes. So I thought, I know what i do. I just got into working in IT and everything. So I basically sort of sorted out my PC to send a fax to him, right? Hooked it up to the phone line and sent him, Hi, John, this is Ed from, you know, all the bands that you used to know and stuff like that. Um, my new band's just released, our new single, you know, it'd be great if you could um play it. Let me know if you want a copy sort of thing. But I wasn't listening to Pill regularly at the time. I just dropped in once or twice a month, right? So I sent it off and he goes, he reads it out about 10 minutes later. Oh, we has got a fax from uh, Ed, you know, formerly Shred of the Stupids and blah, blah, blah. And he says, we have got this thing out like that so he reads out my facts he goes yes yeah, said uh played the single last night actually uh this kind of thing and then went anyway still nice to hear from you or something like that and i was like brilliant that was uh that was embarrassing <laughs> so he read that so sort of embarrassed me in front of the country but you know so we got some play there but we carried on doing big ray as well so that i had this kind of idea of you know sync had confused a lot of people by being half sort of what you might call americana and half punk and so i decided fuck it let's just keep it simple for people um and just do two bands a punk band and a not punk band you know do that kind of thing and i think that's kind of what i've done really ever since i've carried on playing music i had a a short break um mid 90s through to about 99 and then i've just carried on again so big ray essentially carries on as a state of mind i did an album in 2016 um that was kind of an album over the internet for the most part you know people from america and all over the uk doing stuff that's called gateway to the south because i live in balham now you see which is the gateway to the south if you hear kind of uh you know, is it Dudley Moore, Peter Cook, yes. uh, those guys talking about Balam the gateway to the South. Anyway. Um, and then I did um, a punk band called K-Line in 99 through for about 2004, which was, which was great. Loved that. There was a big sort of scene in the UK then. Um, and I'm in a band called Dealing With Damage now, which is um, kind of doing loads of stuff as well, which is our second album's coming out in a, in a couple of weeks, um, which I'm very happy about that, that band, you know, and I've gone from, being super competitive and 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 freaking out about stuff to being just like oh my god i'm still you know i'm in a band at 56 still playing as regularly as i can and um you know just take not taking anything for granted and the fact that you know lovely people like nick evans and and our other friends from back in the day some of us are still still around it's just marvelous you know because everyone's just um it was just lovely and happy to be here, and uh, it's just great. You know, I still yes. see guys from the census thing, snuff. You know, we still see each other all the time. Um, uh, let's think, uh, John, who John's, who John Rusko, who was in Sync and Big Ray and Chocolate with me, was also in until recently. He was in Dealing with Damage. He also now plays bass for the Stupids as well. So there's everyone's kind of still in touch. You know, that kind of thing. Because the Stupids do sort of the old show, I think, once a year or something like that.
0: Yes. Yeah. So do you and Tommy are you do you um do you ever sort of communicate with each other
1: No not not really I just decided it was easiest to um Tommy and Marty I kind of have a problem with, um, I don't know if they even have a problem with me at all, but we did some stuff around those. It's the dreaded thing, you know, when you're in a band, right? So I love kind of rock and roll mythology, right? I used to love it anyway. And I used to read all the rock books, like, you know, Barbara Sharon's book about Keith and and um, Julian Copes, you know, his thing about, I, I love all that stuff, right? But then as soon as someone writes a book about you, <laughs> You realise <laughs> what a dangerous ground it is, and uh, this guy Ian Glasper's written a, a series of books about the UK punk scene, going back from I think from kind of like the seventies through the anarcho punk thing through the kind of American hardcore Ooh, yes. stuff. Yes, yeah. The, the
0: the day the country died.
1: Day the country died. That's right. So I think the one or two of my bands. Yeah, yes. oh, the day country, So I'm not in that one. That's the one I'm not in because um that was it's that's all the kind of Thatcher and acid and the mob and yeah. all that lot, isn't it? Goes up to eighty four. Um, yeah. So, um, the stupids were doing a book, uh, doing one of, for one of his books and, um, yeah, we kind of fell out about <laughs> about the content of that and then they reformed and I did one show with them. I don't know why they asked me to do it. And, um, and then they didn't want to do any more with me, which is fine. Cause I didn't really want to do it. I felt a bit awkward being there cause they were already kind of fully formed as a new kind of three piece. I don't know why they asked me to do it, but to me it looked like they kind of set me up to then so they could kick me out which i wasn't which is when you didn't really want to do it anyway it felt and i just thought you know whether this is true or not it's just easier for me to just wipe my hands of the whole thing and and just just not not deal with it but then one of my closest friends decides to then join them on base so now it's a little bit of a strange thing where poor john's in the middle and uh like that, but you know, the, 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 just the way it goes. You know, and you've heard much worse, I'm yes. sure, over the thing. It's just the yeah, it's That's that's well, the it, way well, it is at the moment.
0: Well, it is amazing because we love those kind of people writing books and making films about it. But I know Mickey from Lush has written a book, and I just think the two other members must be struggling dealing with it because she's kind of everywhere every day, isn't she, with her story and her narrative, and they're and they're keeping very quiet about it and. Uh, it's a bit tricky, isn't it? So, um, it is. So
1: I mean, even if you've got a good recollection, you know, the point is you can't remember stuff from everyone's perspective. So even if you remember it from yours, you know, these things are so, you know, and, and these, these things turn on the smallest detail sometimes, you know, just about. Do you remember, have you heard Ringo talking about farting in the bus? Have you heard about that? no look it up it's hilarious he basically talks about there's a bit in um you know the the um uh, get back films yeah there's a bit where they're down in apple recording and um there's a kind of Paul's talking to george or something like that there's a big discussion going on and ringo just is sitting on the sofa goes that was me or i farted just puts his hand up and you think what's going on and i saw an interview with him i think on like um the late show or something where he explains that they realised that that was early on in the van, right when they were touring and playing all these like um, all these shows. It became a real source of discomfort and concern in the van that if someone was farting, the others would get really pissed off. And they decided really early on that the only way to deal with this is to immediately own up to who <laughs> farted. And I was like, this is fantastic. This is the kind of thing you want to hear about the Beatles. But you know, if they hadn't had that band meeting and discussed that, that could have been the reason they split up in like '68 was because someone was farting too much and never owned up to it do you know what i mean so i'm just saying that even if yeah so even if uh everyone's on side there's always something tiny like that in a band that that can derail everything so i think i would imagine
0: yes i can't imagine how any band survives more than a couple of years in that environment because especially because when we're younger we don't read the room someone's drinking or smoking or just being immature which you know let's face it you know that is quite tempting when you're Either leaving home, or you've got that kind of youthful enthusiasm from the late teens and early twenties, and um, it's a miracle that you know <laughs> bands can do what they do because you know it would. But it's just kind of interesting when somebody has a n that their narrative of what happens, and the other members must be just kind of worried. But there was a very good film about the Chills, Martin Phillips of the Chills, that came out, and he, you know, really nice guy. But he gets to hear what the other members the band felt like and what their experience. And I I think he just felt it quite emotional and just really like, wow, I didn't know... He was so sort of consumed with his own demons and problems, and also doing the creative work. But you know, sitting there watching the film here and there, sort of story, I think it probably helped you know more than anything. Because I've wasn't... added that to
1: my list, yeah. That, that sounds interesting, actually. Really interesting,
0: yes. Mm. Dear old Martin, he's such a lovely man. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it does, it is kind of interesting. So, anyway, so look, so you've got so basically, you know, just to just get an idea. You've never stopped, have you, playing music? It's always been there apart from possibly the odd couple of months off. You know, you've never
1: Yeah no that's right so even yeah i mean i didn't actively have a band really kind of what i would call a band from five, 95 to 99 so there's the four years and that was because i was you know i was <laughs> my marriage was breaking up i put air quotes around that dear listener so i was you know i was getting out of a marriage i was moving back to london from colchester where i'd ended up or ipswich and there was lots of other stuff going on but i actually was still writing songs and doing stuff i just wasn't really actively playing in a band that had any sort of um kind of scene around it should we say but apart from that played yeah consistently all the way through and um you know i've always kind of looked forward i could always reform an old band and do a few, but I, it's not really what i'm interested in i'm always interested in trying to push forward and do and do stuff like that and i'm just interested i'm fascinated by the mechanics of a band now right yeah and and all that kind of stuff and like you, you encapsulated it perfectly a minute ago and you said you know when we're young we're not so good at reading the room and stuff like that and so you know we're better at doing that now right so i think that we can um although time is the enemy now we don't have time right we've all got jobs got stuff things going on it's very difficult because bands need time right you do need that kind of time to to do stuff um so i'm just really intrigued by the whole thing but i just um in a in a way that um so again i was talking about talking about nick evans and his podcast just because i listened to it yesterday but he talked about that kind of sniffing the bistro you know for, for me it's like you know and he's that's his thing right he's always after that thing again and for me i think it's the same thing i just always i've never thought about not doing music right um which is puzzling because i constantly second guess everything i do these days because the youthful confidence has gone completely right yes. <laughs> because you know you can't play music for 40 years Without really, I mean, you know, the last time I was in any way relevant to anyone other than my close group of friends was in like 1988 when I left The Stupids. My musical career, by any measure, kind of really ended in, you know, when I was 21, right? I'm 56 now, right? So the point is I've been doing the rest of it and I keep sort of saying, why am I doing this? You know, people collect stamps as a hobby. They don't need to do it in front of an audience, right? You know, why... Why do I feel the need to do that? But that's all part of the, the whole stuff that feeds into. And, and you know, uh, I don't know. I just feel that there's always, you know, we should always be saving the world or, uh, you know, adopting a, a rhino or something. We should be doing something, right? And I just feel that sitting there playing guitar and writing songs is kind of really redundant. But then, you know, there's people like you and, and other people, millions of us around the world, that music's like such an important thing it's not such a bad thing to create music for, for 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 other if other people enjoy it that's that's wonderful but i just you know feel the need to do it really um and it is, um, it
0: is interesting because yeah. i mean you know so many people i speak to and that's the one thing that's really blown my mind with this doing this um these interviews is that people are so committed you know i did an interview with a guy from wasted youth and it's amazing mm-hmm. just that commitment to the music and still to record and all that you know even though huge amounts of issues and problems to do with substance and and all and sort of prison um but you know <laughs> it's, it's still going to sort of put out you know a tour and put out and wants to make new material and do stuff as well as archive lots of his other stuff that he's just discovered you know but it's like there is there was never a moment in that whole narrative that that music or creativity didn't really sort of drive one forward I think that's the one thing I've really noticed is that it's the thing isn't it like was it um Neil Young I suppose he followed the moves as he's I think he's referred Mm. to it you know that kind of commitment I'm going to just do this I can't I you know it's it's almost like an not an illness but it is just the thing that you just can't stop and yeah you're going to do it until the end and look at david bowie black star you know it's just the most extraordinary project you know putting that out making those videos which was stunning and doing a play as well the month before he died you know you're just thinking jesus you know you weren't you weren't taking it that so slowly and you know motorhead lemmy i mean they were in germany weren't they doing a tour you know, in December, and he died just after Christmas that same month. And it's like, God. And I think they'd even booked another tour. Yeah, though, I think they had. Yeah. Even though he looked very shrunken and slightly white and burning. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So, look, just last question. Look, if hmm. you could have whispered some, you know, a, something to your 16-year-old self starting out. Is there anything that you might have been tempted by or just even if that person ignored you? I just wondered if there was anything that you would have just whispered to them. So,
1: I think it depends how much time I would have because I would have so much to say (laughs) about lots of stuff, but to keep it short for the podcast, right? So specifically in a narrow frame of like, the band you know paradigm or whatever right i think that i would absolutely i'd have a couple of things to say so one would be maybe a quick breakdown of band dynamics right and what you know what's important to stick to your guns when it's not you know and then just you know break down how a band works because i hadn't got a clue how a band worked right i did like five or not five probably three or four bands before i'd really had even any clue that this was something to worth investigating right i mean who else would go to a workplace which was like, you know, you're almost self-employed, right? But not that you're kind of bringing, you're trying to take, you're like going, you're going over the cliff, going follow who's with me and just running over a cliff. That's what you're doing. Because in my role in the band, I tend to sort of be the organizer, the catalyst, right? I'm not the musician really, right? In in broad terms, right? I don't make everything sound great, but I've always got the idea. I've always got the energy. And so I'm the one that people have to believe in, right? (laughs) (laughs) And then, and you know, how, why would you do that? I mean, you know, I, Paul's finished, didn't complete his PhD because he was in the band, you know, John, the guitar player stopped doing his, his maths degree. You know, these are things, I mean, you know, the drummer, the guy that died, you know, he had two young children. We were touring all over, you know, I feel, I felt terrible for years about him. You know, he died when his son was nine. Right. And, and he, for the, two or three years prior to that, we've been on tour almost the whole time with Sink and boot Ray, you know, and I feel terrible. I mean, we're friends with his kids now. I love them, right? They're older than he is when he died, right? But I still feel terrible about, you know, dragging dragging him away from them. So, you know, who would do something like that with that level of kind of commitment expected from other people and not really even think about what you were doing, right? That's crazy. So I'd have a little word to myself about that. But I think the thing, the key thing I would say to myself is that, the people who are in the room when you record a song are the people that write the song right now even if i write every single note that i play every lyric every melody of that song without those people being in the room with me it would have sounded different right so that version of that song is really written by the band and it pains me to say it because you know i'm not a great musician not a great singer but i do pride myself on the songwriting but i have to say that the number of Arguments that caused over the years, I would go back to myself when I was 18 and starting out going, Whatever happens, doesn't matter how much of the song you think you wrote, it wouldn't sound like that if you didn't do it with those people. Right. And so just always write songs by Sync or songs by Big Ray or Chocolate or whatever it is. Right. And so now it's like all songs written by dealing with damage. Yeah. Even though obviously I start most of them and most of the ideas are mine, I know that it wouldn't be. You know, and that's what you two have done, and stuff like that, right? And yes. REM—they yeah. do that, and that's why they stay together, and it's why they tend because they just chop everything up equally. Now, I've got the luxury of not having any made any money from music, so <laughs> we never <laughs> really have any money worries. But I think it's just one of those things where that's that's the thing I would say to myself at that age is like, look, don't get hung up on being a songwriter, right? The people that know know, and you know, but you know, it wouldn't be like this without those same people in the room.
0: Yes, this is, you know, like those ideas, and that's it.
1: So that would be my words of wisdom. Well,
0: Indeed, we'll leave it there. A massive thank you to Ed for giving me the time for that interview. This has been The C86 Show. I'm David Esau. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. These have all been archived. Indeed, they have. Aren't you lucky? Um, Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, that's the place to go. But um, in the meantime, if you want to find out any more about Ed's uh, life in music... Disogs seems to be the best place to... Um, a starter, anyway, and you'll find out more about SYNC. Also, Big Ray, and also dealing with damage. It's all there, and much more. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay, stay safe.